This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. necessarily care about baseball, but as I keep saying, baseball for me is a largely a metaphor for life, and that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. I don't think it is. Additionally, uh, baseball to me is Americana and American history, and look, I'm not the – I don't follow baseball uh, talamitically like I used to do when I was a child, and I could tell you every player on almost every roster, uh, who was leading in the league in home runs in both leagues, who's leading the league in RBI, batting average, ERA. Now, these days, I watch a baseball game, and usually when I say watch, I keep a baseball game on in the background – while I'm preparing for the show or playing with my son or something. And inevitably, I put these baseball games on, and inevitably there's a statistic in that game that flashes on the screen that I've never heard of. When I go to the ballpark, they put pitchers up, they put uh, batters up, and I have to ask the person next to me, what is that statistic? What does that mean? Is that good or is that bad, that number? What does it mean? And is, what is 1,047 OPS? To me, it's just um, so I don't want to hold myself out as this baseball expert, but I am quite fond of baseball and its history and what it means. And I'm fascinated by the possibilities for its future because we've seen these changes that baseball's making now. I'm curious if it's going to work out. And we also uh, can look back at how much baseball has already changed in so many different respects, some, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Do you know what the best team in baseball is right now, or who the best team in baseball is? I know Kenneth knows. He um, holds himself out as some sort of a sports anchor. Who, uh, who is the best team in baseball there, Kenneth? Tampa Bay Rays. Tampa Bay Rays, or as I call them, the team formerly known as the Devil Rays. Why did they have to get rid of the Devil portion of that? I don't know. I like that, too. Yeah. I, I mean, to, I'm still going to call them the Devil Rays. Doesn't stop me. I change words all the time. I'm going to call them the Devil Rays. It was probably a political correctness thing. I'll tell you a story about that another day. But anyway, the the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, all right, the Rays, have won 14 straight home games. Now, do you know how good that is? 14 straight home games. That is the longest streak to start a season since the 1886 Detroit Wolverines. Okay? This is almost unprecedented. No one alive has ever seen anything like this. So the last time... A team started this hot at home. And look, you want to have your best 81 games at home because those are the fans that are cheering you on, that are paying for you. Those are the fans that advertisers want to reach. Those are the fans that the people watching on television see in the stadiums. The last time a team started this hot at home, the memory of the Civil War was still very fresh. Radio 
had not yet even been invented yet. Think about that. Um, Indoor lighting was still a relatively new concept thanks to Thomas Edison's light bulb. And yet, despite winning every game at Tropicana Field, the Rays have Major League Baseball's sixth worst average attendance. You know what the average attendance is in Tampa Bay? 17,551. Think about that. This is not just the best team in baseball. This is potentially, at least at this point in the season, one of the best teams of all time. And no one is going to the games. There's one exception. Oh, there's two exceptions. Do you know when people go to see the games? When they play the Mets or the Yankees. Because in Florida, evidently, there's a lot of transplanted New Yorkers that still root for the Mets and Yankees. And when they go down to uh, play the Marlins or the Tampa Bay Rays, the Marlins are the Miami baseball team, They, the, the Mets fans and the Yankee fans fill the stadium. Other than that, nobody's watching this team. So they're building supposedly, this has been an issue for years. And I don't know that it's going to be fixed uh, by a historic start. Uh, They're building supposedly a new ballpark in St. Petersburg, and I'm sure folks are saying that can't come soon enough. But um, to me, it's just so interesting that this team that is so good can't get anyone to come see the games. So Tampa Bay is 20-3 and overall since 1901. The Only the 1911 Tigers and the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers. Had better starts. So, um, and, and they're playing, then it's it's not just boring wins. They're doing exciting things. Their shortstop made a really spectacular catch in Monday's win over the Astros. It went deep into foul territory, snagged a fly ball with his bare hand. I mean, this is an exciting team to watch. And yet the people in Tampa don't want to watch it. Now, they just moved... The uh, they just announced that the Oakland Athletics, which have been in Oakland for decades, they're moving to Las Vegas. I'm curious to see how that works out. I do wonder, though, if one of these Florida teams that can't seem to get anyone to come to the games unless they play the Mets or the Yankees would be better off moving to a city like Las Vegas. And I have to assume that Major League Baseball and the owners of Tampa Bay, when they started, I guess about 20 years ago, they did at least a little bit of research to determine if Tampa Bay could support a baseball team. And yet they're not drawing. And I wonder if you have any theories as to why. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I also wonder if you were in charge of this baseball team. You're the owner. You're the general manager. You're the um, chief assistant to the general manager. You're, you're the traveling secretary. You're whatever George Costanza's job was when he was working with the Yankees. You're whatever. If you had this team and you were in charge of the marketing, you're in charge of the advertising, you're in charge of social media, you're in charge of the on-field promotions, what would you do? Because clearly the play on the field is five-star. What would you do if you had a great baseball team that no one wanted to come see? How would you change things? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In my view, 
the most famous person ever to play for Tampa Bay, the best baseball player ever to play uh, for Tampa Bay was, of course, Wade Boggs. Now, I'm sure most people remember Wade Boggs from his time with the Red Sox and his time with the Yankees. But um, he and he kind of screwed up the Hall of Fame rules for anybody, for everybody that came after him, because he made an agreement with Tampa, which I'm sure they paid handsomely for, that if he went into the Hall of Fame, he would do it as a Tampa Bay Ray, which was ridiculous because he barely played for Tampa Bay. And when he did play for them, it was at the very end of his career, not at all in his prime, uh, like he was with when he was with the Red Sox and even to some extent the Yankees. And after that, they made the rule that, okay, Major League Baseball is going to pick what team you go into the Hall of Fame as. But anyway, um, I got a chuckle out of this. He's fighting for justice in his newest venture. Wade Boggs is a first ballot Hall of Famer, 12-time All-Star, 8-time Silver Slugger, and a 2-time Gold Glove winner, 5 batting titles, over 3,000 hits. And with all those accomplishments in mind, Wade Boggs still has one more thing that he would like some recognition for. He wants the credit, the recognition for being the inspiration for Cool Blue. Cool Blue is the Pabst Blue Ribbon mascot. You know, ever have the beer, Pabst Blue Ribbon? Years ago, that had that catchy jingle, what do we have, Pabst Blue Ribbon, da-da-da-da, Pabst Blue Ribbon. And uh, then it made a big comeback about, I want to say about 10, 15 years ago, among hipsters. And then among college students, and those aren't always the same thing. So now you do see PBR a little bit more prominent, and it used to be a very cheap beer, and I think it is cheaper than a lot of the other beers, but it's not as cheap as it was when it was ascending to popularity. I've I've tried it. It's okay. It's fine. So Cool Blue is the Pabst Blue Ribbon mascot with a striking resemblance to Wade Boggs. Uh, maybe we'll get, if we can get um, like a side-by-side comparison, I'll post this on my uh, Facebook page of the Wade Boggs and uh, Cool Pl- Oh, You know what I'll do? I'm going to post a video in which Wade Boggs, you could see Wade Boggs, and I think there's an image of the Cool Blue mascot in there as well. I'm going to post this on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Moranofan because now Boggs has decided to go public with his claims. And he dropped a video expose demanding beer justice for baseball fans and beer drinkers across the country. This is the ad, I guess, or expose that Wade Boggs has just put out there. Meet Cool Blue. This is Cool Blue. No. That is Wade Boggs. I started doing a little digging myself, and what I found shook me to the core. Numbers don't lie. The guy I was replacing told me, Cool Blue is your problem now. You're telling me that isn't Cool Blue? He's the only guy who's ever hired me to follow himself. PBR knows the truth, and soon the world will too. So that's the teaser trailer, but Wade Boggs has released a list of demands, and we, I believe this is tongue firmly planted in cheap. One is admit the truth that Wade Boggs is cool blue. Two, give fans a new Pabst Blue Ribbon 
on Boggs. Uh, three, name a brewery after Wade Boggs. Four, put Boggs on bottles of Pabst Blue Ribbon. Five, publish Wade Boggs' favorite chicken recipe. And six, make Boggs the official spokesperson for Pabst Blue Ribbon. So he's launched a website to host this expose and his demands. The website is boggsisblue.com. I think it's pretty clever on the part of Pabst Blue Ribbon, on the part of Wade Boggs, on the part of everybody involved, because it does look like him. And you could post, you could see the video of that uh, uh, the teaser that I just played for you on my Facebook page. 800-848-9222. If you were in charge of Tampa Bay, what would you do? Uh, what do you make of the fact that they can't draw anyone to the games, even though they're playing great? Let me tell you who's coming up in five minutes. The amazing Kreskin. Yes, that's right. The, one of the world's greatest mentalists and a guy who is just an incredible personality. He's going to join us. Maybe we'll pin him down to some predictions. I'll try and take some of your calls for him as well, because he is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating man. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello, sir. I, I was at the tying game about 10 days ago when they tied the opening streak record, 12 games or whatever. And I, I'll, let me say, I'm not the person to talk about sports. I'm not that guy. But I was with some friends. We went to the sure. game. My my take, my initial takeaway from this was, you know, St. Petersburg, Florida in general, it's got an older population of people, right? And I'm not, I don't consider myself old or unhip by any stretch of the imagination. I could not get into the stadium unless I downloaded the app, created a username and password, bought a digital ticket, and scanned my way in, even though they were 25% capacity. There was nobody at a window for me to walk up, and, and it was only $10. It was great. You got into the game for 10 bucks, standing room only. You sat wherever you wanted because the stadium's empty. <laughs> it's a great strategy to get into the game, right? But <laughs> – they have no ticket takers. You cannot walk up to a will call to anything and just to, to just buy a ticket game game day because technology short circuited the whole. And it probably happens in other cities too. But if you want to inspire or encourage other people to come, go within their experience. Anybody older than me probably get dissuaded from going from that reason alone. And it was a big pain in the neck. Why do you think they make it such a, a an unfriendly experience for customers? If you had to go through all what you had to go to, I wouldn't go to a second game either. I mean, somebody's got to know that that's annoying. It's future training, right? They're training training like everything else. They're trying to train everybody to get onto these platforms and do it so they ultimately can save staff. But right now they had more staff because they had to have assistants standing outside getting 20 people to download an app that never even, you know, used a cell phone before. I watched it happen, and I didn't do it. My friend bought tickets, and I just gave him money. Same annoyance goes for the vending now. They don't, you can't even walk up and buy a beer. You have to go to a turnstile, prepay on a tablet, go to a turnstile, then open a refrigerator, take your beer that nobody's even checking, which this should, this should change, make changes, and then you walk out the other end. Everything's just digital. There's no cash transactions anymore. You I know, think that has a lot to do with it. I, I've, been to, I've been to some other ballparks that have adopted that uh, no cash transactions, all digital uh, methodology. And mm-hmm. it is a little irritating. I do have to say, I, I haven't experienced as much of a, a rigmarole as you experienced. But, uh, but I, I would think you put your finger on uh, one of the major problems that, they, that they've had there. Did you notice if other fans at the ballpark were having the same frustration with this that you were? 
obviously because there were 60 people trying to get a ticket. I had to stay online. I had to stand on a line 12 deep with 12 representatives trying to talk everybody into downloading an app and then linking your bank account and then creating a username and a password. It was so annoying. I won't go back to that. I hate baseball to begin with. I'm not the guy, but I just went for the spirit of it all. (laughs) Yeah, it's something to do with you. It's great. Get get in there. Go see those games. Yeah. Hey, uh, but do you think Tampa can, can maintain a team, can support a team, or should they move? I don't know if moving is going to create any more, any more stimulus in the game for, for the locals. I don't think it has to do with the stadium at all. The stadium's in a great part of town. It's easy. It's accessible. I don't, you know, it might look a little shabby, but it was fun inside. It was a great I mean, they're baseball stadium. What more are they going to do? They provide seating. Yeah. It's just a stadium. I mean, they're not doing anything else. So I'm not sure. And if you were, would you spend a billion dollars to build a new facility? Well, well, I, well I'm wondering if you, go to, if you went to a baseball-starved city, that has a population that could support a team, maybe they'd be better off, but uh, but I don't know. Hey, Gino, thank you for that. Uh, appreciate appreciate the call and the insight. All right, the amazing Kreskin joins us in a moment. Uh, we're going to talk to Colonel Eileen Collins next hour. Fascinating, fascinating woman. She is the first American woman to command a space mission. We're going to talk to her about what's happening in space now. Uh, her experience working her way through the military and uh, working her way up to NASA. Going to talk about a wide variety of subjects. And then in the third hour of the program, obviously President Biden kicked off his uh, presidential campaign yesterday. And we're going to talk about uh, what the future of campaign finance is in this country. A lot to get to, and I'm excited about it. Uh, Dan McMillan going to join us in our third hour. The Amazing Kreskin joins us. And by the way, we'll try and take a couple of your calls for The Amazing Kreskin as well. Um, 800-848-9222. The Amazing Kreskin, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Obviously, this is a great song from The Love and Spoonful. Many of you may also remember it from a film that came out about 15 years ago. It was a pretty integral part of, well, I mean, a small part of the plot of that film. The film was called The Great Buck Howard. Decent film with John Malkovich, who was very good. But we have someone on much better than The Great Buck Howard, someone that I have known for many years And every time we interact, I always leave with a smile on my face and just having been amazed. A wonderful guy, a guy who has been amazing audiences on television, on radio, and in person for far more decades than I'm sure he'd care for me to admit. Noted mentalist, 
author of the book, The Adventures of the Amazing Kreskin, the one and only Amazing Kreskin. Kreskin, it's great to talk with you again. It's been way too long. Frank, I can't I can't believe the last time I think we spoke was at 2020, some, somewhere over April 7th, 2020. But it's so I love the title of your, your the other side of midnight, Frank. You are you are truly a character, and 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 I have great great feelings about you. You know you know the airline industry announced just a couple months ago that they figure I've flown a little over in my career, a little over three million miles. And <laughs> you, you know what it's like to fly today. It isn't the fun it once was. Oh, yeah. But, I uh, uh, I uh, had the privilege of waiting around on an airport in, if, after my uh, flight oh. was canceled on Sunday for about five oh, hours. So oh, I can absolutely oh, relate. Oh, my God. Frank, uh, my heart goes out to you because people are telling this, me this all over the place. And uh, the uh, by the way, the story I have to tell you, which is one of the most an, an, exper- an experience I cannot explain. In spite of my work as a mentalist and what have you, I cannot explain it. Uh, some years ago, I, I didn't have my road, my road manager with me at that time. But I don't know why, because I usually travel with a road manager. But I was appearing in in, the, in uh, New York State. And I overslept. Now, I don't oversleep. It never happens to me. And I woke up, and uh, I was living with my folks, and uh, they're no longer with us. But I, I bolted. I, I got up, and they said, "You don't you have a flight of such and such? I said, oh, my God, I should have left a half an hour ago. So I didn't eat l- breakfast or anything, got dressed, got my luggage. My luggage was already packed got into my car and I drove myself to Newark Airport. In those days you didn't go through a lot of security. You parked outside at the parking lot in the area and you walked to the where you knew you were going to be checking in. And I walked and I got, got checked in. I gave them my luggage and they said, "Creston, you're going to have to hurry. Here you they knew me because I've flown out of there so many times." So I rushed with one attaché case to the area outside and went into the building in time to see my plane taking off. So I missed my flight. There was the flight. I, I'm, I'm mosey back, and I don't miss I don't miss flights unless it was some other cause that we couldn't control. And I was very, very down. And I came up to them. They said, Kreskin, uh, we have some good news. We can get you a connecting flight, fly you to this town in 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 uh, in in New York, and then connect to your city. I said, "Well, that's fine." So I got on the plane with only my piece of luggage, and I took off, and I got to the place where I was working, which was a nightclub that night, and it was sold out. And I was glad I was there in plenty of time. I couldn't change to my dress clothes because I didn't have them; they were checked through. And I'm in the dressing room, and a guy is going to go out there to introduce me. And before he walks out, he grabs the door. The back, my dressing room doors fly open, and in walk two policemen. I said, gentlemen, uh, I don't know what to say. Is everything okay? They said, Kreskin, you're Kreskin, aren't you? I said, yes. They said, is this your luggage? I said, yes, it is. They said, we were able to tell by looking at the luggage and then calling your your business address, and they told us where you were going, and we're only at almost an hour. I said, it's incredible you drove out here. I said, well, it's incredible that this luggage is in your presence because the flight you took crashed in a cow pasture in New York. Wow. Oh, my. survived. Uh, So it was one of the most dramatic incidents. To this day, 
whatever made me sleep over and miss the flight, I will never know. But when I walked on stage that night, you could hear a pin drop as I told this story. I can imagine. You've had, you, you've had crazy things happen in transportation misadventures, haven't you, Frank? I noticed in reading about you. That Well, that, that's, certainly, that's certainly true, but I can't compete with that. All right, uh, Kreskin, I have a number of questions for you. The listeners have a number of questions for you. So uh, we're going to cover as much ground as we can. The next time okay. we speak, though, i got to get you in studio for an hour or two because oh, I, uh, I, I it's would. been too I, And I can stay longer if you, longer than a half hour, whatever you, was that best for you. Yeah, I, I appreciate I can, that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, well, let me ask you about if people haven't heard our previous discussions, Kreskin, if they are not familiar with your abilities, I introduced you as a mentalist. Now, a two part question. How do you you've always been very careful to say you're not a psychic, you're a mentalist. Explain to our listeners what the difference is. And then secondly, can you explain if your skill of mentalism, which is just remarkable, is that something that anyone can learn or is that something you're either born with or you're not well i knew what i wanted to do when i was five and a half years old frank because of a cartoon that you may have seen when you were a kid that was all my i couldn't read but my mother would read me comic books and i got fascinated with this character called mandrake the magician it was in all the daily newspapers it was a continuous thing like the phantom but then there were cartoon books about him he was the magician he 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 uh, was a mentalist and he was also had hypnotic abilities and i play acted this in my uh, five, six, eight years, and, and said I was the character when we played Cops and Robbers that solved the crimes. I was playing Mandrake, and then in my early teens, I was beginning to read thoughts because for me, it was an ability that I developed to sensitize myself to people around me. By the time I was, by the time I was in fourth and sixth grade, Miss Galloway, my my homeroom teacher in sixth grade set aside one entire class once a week for me to work with my classmates. And I can remember one day I said, all of you think of a movie. And I pointed to Gloria Palmer. This is years ago, of course, because I'm 88 years old now and still working busy as ever. And I said, Gloria, you're thinking of a movie. Yeah, but it's, it's not recently that it was at last Christmas. She says, Oh, my God, yes, it was, and I named the movie. Well, this became an integral part of my career, my tuning in and sensitizing myself. I can't foretell the future. I can't tell everything like a a mind reader is supposed to read everybody's brain and what's going on. They have to center their, their thoughts on a specific thought or an item or what have you. And as a result of this, Carson and I did 60-some shows. Actually, it was 88 shows, but the others were not uh, listed uh, through the years. But, but he, he, uh, he, I, he saw me on another show where I fell over and flat, flat on my face, and I stayed there. And the comedian who was running the show came, stood and started kidding and laughing and joking about me. And when I, when the, we went to a break, I got up and shook hands with him. He said, thank you for doing what you did. You gave me a whole segment to kid you and mock you and what have you. Carson saw that experience. And through the years, whenever you saw him come on as a certain character, he would bump against a table and look like he was slightly drunk. He based... Karnak the Magnificent on the instant where he saw me falling down. I love those appearances that you did with Carson. I still watch them. They're absolutely terrific. 
He was so, but I, but I, I have to tell you, it is because because of the concentration of people that has enabled. Now I've been involved, and when we have more time on another show, we'll talk about it more. I've been involved in over 150 crime experiences with police in different parts of the country, and some of the stories are extraordinarily dramatic, and I, I'll tell you about them. You know, when we have more time, but my life has been like an adventure. And and but the the important thing is that in in my my appearances, I feature something in my program. And I'm going to be, by the way, can I mention where I'm going to be in Atlantic City? I'm going to be in May May 20th and May 27th, appearing on May 20th, May 27th at Resorts Hotel and Casino. I'll be doing a a 90-minute performance, but there's a story behind that appearance there because years ago, I uh, and I've been banned from casinos ever since – yeah, ever since at the Ruba, I was at a casino and I, for three weeks. And when I uh, when I was closing, I said to my road manager, "I'm going to play blackjack." He says, "Christian, you're out of your mind. You're going to throw you out of here." I said, "No, they don't know me here. They it's the it's the British that see me and the and the uh, American people and what have you." So I went to another room and started put down. Uh, 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 I guess it was thirty five dollars or what have you, and I played. And uh, after a few hours, the whole casino in my room got silent because the place was surrounded. And when I finished, they paid me in chips. And I, what am I going to do with chips from a foreign country? And I asked around. I found an Englishman. I said, I said, is there any way I can cash this? He says, yes, you can in the casino. I'll take you to where it is. I cashed the money. And from the thirty-seven dollars, I had en- ended up with twenty-two thousand four hundred dollars. So I can't play in any because I, oh, I can understand but that. In, but in, in, at, the, at Atlantic City, where I'm going to be appearing at resorts, they love this story. Uh, some years ago, I said, you know, I'll only pay for play fifteen twenty dollars. I love the game of blackjack. Could you let me play? They say, Kreskin, if that's going to be your limit, you help yourself and you play. So I sat down at a table and I played and I played. Again, the place got quiet, but I was only playing the $20 and so forth and so forth. And when I stopped, they said, Kreskin, you realize you won 22 hands without breaking. They said, we haven't seen something like this in ages. So I thanked them. I I, I, I cashed the money, a few hundred dollars in and went home. I get a call the next day and this uh, they, they said, this is the folks from re- resorts where I'm appearing, you know, but this was in in 2003, I think 2003, they called me the next day. They said, Kreskin, we want you to know something. You can play here anywhere you want. You created such interest and excitement. Oh, I can imagine. And so forth. I can imagine. But, but they said to they said to me, you know, when you won the twenty two hands, you broke a record. I said, oh, I didn't know about this. They said, yes. In nineteen ninety seven, a gentleman came in and what and won eighteen hands in a row, and it was you, Kreskin. You broke your own record. <laughs> but but just to just to reiterate my well, question, uh, Kreskin. Explain to people, if you can, the difference between a mentalist and a psychic. And is it something well, that— Well, a psychic claims, yeah. 
you know, that some kind of supernaturalism, they're delving into the brain and what have you. But it has to do with the concentration of people involved. And, and, and people are going to see me, whether it's the 20th or 27th in May, they're going to see me and uh, uh, realize that I tune in. And it could be an audience of hundreds of people or outdoors. It's been 9,000 people. But let me tell you what's the highlight of my program all over the world and you know probably know about it because I end every uh, hour or 90 minute or two hour concerts with it it's my check test oh, I yeah. t- I've told you about this and that without going into further details I g- gather a committee of four people from the audience who are strangers to me I give them my check and and then I am escorted from the building by someone from the audience plus a person who knows the building and take me somewhere where I'm outdoors and cannot know what's going on. If I'm indoors, if I'm outdoors performing, they put me in a car that has all the windows plastered covered. The problem, the challenge is this. My check is hidden anywhere in the auditorium or the theater building in which I'm performing. And when I return I, the, the committee verifies I was outdoors or could not see what was going on and did not hear anything. And I simply point out that if I fail to find my check, I will forfeit it. And I have failed a couple of times. I give it back to the company that booked me, and the show is for free. One night outdoors because the, the, I do, I've done hundreds of colleges in New Jersey and in, in, in New Pennsylvania and in, in the New Jersey. The United States, I would say, and 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 also in 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 Canada, and uh, one and one uh, time we were outdoors because it was family weekend, and because of the audience being not only teachers but the students and the parents, they couldn't fit them in, so they put me in a gymnasium that was partially outdoors, and it, they seated all the people. I come back in, walk down the aisle. And I suddenly freeze in front of a gentleman, and I said, sir, uh, I hope I don't embarrass you as you open your mouth. Well, there's no check. I so close it. I apologize. I said, I hope I haven't offended you. Please forgive me. I walk back to the stage, and I pick another member of the committee who hit it because the committee member follows, stands, walks way behind me and, and doesn't talk to me. I don't ask any questions. I don't ask anything. I said, you concentrate. You must think step by step what I have to do. Concentrate in your mind. I'm walking down the aisle, and I suddenly freeze, and I turn. And so help me, God. It's the same gentleman as before. I said, sir, would you stand? I said, I don't understand this. Does this this have anything to do with your mouth? I wish we had a camera then. It's one of the most unforgettable moments in my career. He opened his mouth, reached into his mouth, took out his upper plates, and handed me my check. <laughs> that is tremendous. Well, what, I'm uh, I'm going to hopefully try and make one of those shows on the 20th or the 27th <laughs> in Atlantic yeah, City. Do. I, I do get down there quite a bit, as you know, and uh, hopefully Aww. we can uh, we can hang out a bit. All right, a lot of folks eager to chat with you. Um, yes, you're going to get a kick out of this. Because it's 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 getting a lot of publicity. I'm putting one of my cars, my two cars that I travel with. I don't travel when I fly out of the country or fly to other parts of the country. I take planes, of course, all the time. But I'm putting it up for the highest bidder because it's a 
it's a beautiful uh, uh it's it's a, it's a beautiful e- it's going to be on eBay and a, a Lincoln MKS and so forth but that's not the whole picture and it's going on and people can 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 get the information if they want him by going uh to looking up the Lincoln MKS and it's listed on my, on my for the auction on eBay but that's not the only thing whoever does finally win the the and I, I of course win by bidding and, and 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 whomever gets the car I'm also agreeing, and they say nobody in showbiz has ever done this. I'm also agreeing to appear at their home if it's not too far or whatever they plan. Wow. I will appear at their home and do a half-hour performance. So that's going to be kind of special. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, that, my, that, that, would be, that would be great. i got to ask you this, Kreskin, because I, I have pages yeah, of notes. I, I love talking. I, I could talk to you for hours. Oh, yeah, Frank, well, you know? we'll do that. Next time you're, you're in studio, maybe we'll plan something special. But um, right. I would be remiss if, uh, given that yesterday President Biden announced his presidential candidacy, oh, if I didn't God. ask you to make a prediction on the record for 2024, Biden, Trump, someone else, what do you think? Well, this is the one time, Frank, and I, I've made predictions in the past. I've predicted even the headlines of newspapers and, uh, and, and, and some sporting events as well. But I decided, Frank – to pass in this situation, and I have to tell you why. I am, and I've been interviewed all over the place about this. We don't have time unless we do have a few minutes to go into it, but I'm very, very concerned about the future of the United States and uh, because we have two great enemies in the world right now, and we're not facing up to this, and you young people we don't have the draft anymore in the United States, but we should have it because my brother was for 15 years in the in the uh, services, and 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 when we have wars, we we we, we volunteer because this is the greatest country, and uh, and and by the way, and uh, we are at war because our greatest enemy right now, and I could go on for the next two hours, but I won't because I've sat with so many military people and it's been explained to me, our greatest enemy is Red Red China, communist China. But we have another enemy. We have two enemies in this country which are helping to bring down the United States. By the way, if anyone doubts with me what I'm talking about, do they know that the uh, that the uh, red China has flooded the universities with mil- mil- millions of dollars, and if you're in in a comedian in show business, you probably already know this. Most comedians in all of show business will never work in a university again, and the reason they don't work, and I love working in universities, they do don't 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 work, is that most of the major universities. Now have a rule that if you are a, a you know about this yet, and if you're a comedian and you're going into it, you have to supply them with your entire script and not alter its script at all. And as comedians say to me, Kreskin, well, our life is ad libbing and what have you. This is part of our work. It's gotten to that point that China has influence. Look at the look at the police look at the police station in New York just a few days ago when the police called me and said, Kreskin, you got to talk about this. They found the police station was all occupied and run by people from Red China who were posing as 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 representatives and taking over the station and so forth because this was going to be their way of controlling things. The other control we have is a person 
who has helped to bring down this country to a disastrous degree. He's toned, torn down walls, and when the first wall came down, President, uh, our president did not decide to correct it and what have you. Instead, hundreds and hundreds of people came in, children came in, and drug movers came in, and now it's the walls have been coming down all over the place. You cannot go into San Francisco anymore, one of my favorite cities. You cannot walk through the city because it's filled with drug addicts. It's filled with people who mm. defecate on the street. You know all about this, what's yeah. going on. Oh, yeah. and, and, and other cities are going the same way. And he, and if, if, if the right president were there, and he saw what happened with the first move in, he would have said, my God, children have died. Uh, uh, they're, they're moving stuff in. And now we have drug addicts all over the United States and the whole ring of going on. And this is one way of bringing down our society. And, 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 and then to defund the police, any, any, any politician defunds the police is not a politician. He should be banned from office because he's a criminal. My brother was a policeman, and I worked – my brother's a policeman 15 years, and I worked on, 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 on over 150 crime cases. We need these people very deep. I'm sorry. I had to say this to you, sure. Frank, because I love – and God bless America because I love this country. Yeah, well, I, I think you've uh, demonstrated that repeatedly over the years. All right, we're going to do a lightning round of questions for you here because a lot of people are sure, eager to sure, chat with Frank. you. Let me begin. And by with... the way, Frank, i got to warn you. I want to warn your people. Folks, when I appear, I give you my word, uh, when I appear in person with Frank, in order to protect ourselves, I dare not read his thoughts on camera. I'm only joking, Frank. <laughs> uh, you know, Frank, if we can't laugh at ourselves in this day and age, we're in trouble. We've got to laugh at ourselves. Uh, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Joe is in Queens. Joe, what's your question for Chris? Yeah, two quick questions. One, in everyday conversations, can you pick up things like people lying more easily and if you lost contact with a friend, do you know where they are? If I lost contact with a friend, unless there's someone I can work with, and, I, and there's a there's a crime criminal a crime experience in which a, a criminal disappeared, and I helped to find them, but that's a, that's a story in itself which would take about five minutes to take if we had the time. But I want to I want to mention to you, with friends, they know me well enough. When I was in college and I was already performing professionally all over the place. In fact, my first year at, at, at Seton Hall University, uh, when I first appeared there uh, and I was going to college, uh, uh, I did a two and a half hour concert and that was my, I was a freshman in college at that time. But at the same time, uh, your, your question, your question, people ask me, did you date? Did you go out on dates? Because you, you, I mean, you enjoy a company of women and so forth. I said, yes, I did. They said, well, did they ever cancel? And I got to tell you, tell you something, sir. I give you my word of honor as God is my judge. Not one time, even though they saw me on stage reading the thoughts, telling people something about maybe a personal thing in their lives and what have you, did they, they never canceled. And, I, and people say, well, what were they, naive? I said, no. I think they just trusted me. I, I would I agree with that. Like I that. would absolutely agree with I, I that. I don't do that. Bob is in Ohio. He's got a good question. This was actually on my list for you. Hello, Bob. Hey. Uh, yeah, I uh, have always admired you, Kreskin. Um, 
I'm 60 years old, and ever since I watched TV, it was a toddler, and I could see you on TV on through the oh, ages. And I saw – Great. Um, uh, I have a, a couple questions. One regards Uri Got to be brief, Bob. Go ahead, brief. Uh, okay, Uri Geller, Edgar Casey, and do you believe in out-of-body experiences, or maybe have you ever had one? I no, I, I I haven't had an out of body experience. Uh, 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 you know, Uri Geller claimed to bend things with his mind and so forth, which was a good 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 magical effect and what have you. But at the same time, I I I have had distant experiences that I can't explain, and that they've been people that I that I've been close to, and and uh, many of you listening in right now, you you've got to think in your life. Your married life, your social life, what have you, have had experiences where you suddenly sense, even if the person came before they came, that something was wrong and you couldn't explain why. How this happens with people that I haven't planned to to try to work with them at that moment or part of a program, we it, we can't explain. But for us to assume that we know everything about the human mind, we would be very very foolish because I know very little about every uh, anything, and and. And I and I'm proud to admit that. Yeah, it was interesting that, you know, Johnny Carson embraced you and clearly was so oh. fond of you and was so critical and denounced Uri Geller uh, publicly. Uh, he really did. That, but he, sure. he understood that I I I, I didn't and claimed uh, supernaturalism sure. or to, to, to change people's lives and what have you. But, you know, I had an office for many years. By, by myself, a clinical psychologist put the office together and said, you can work. With, and I worked with patients. And someday when we talk longer, I'll tell you some incredibly dramatic stories. All right. Uh, Kraskin, there's a, a lot of other subjects that we're going to go over next time you're here. I'll, I'll schedule something with you. Uh, we'll, ch- we'll chat in the next day or two and schedule something for you before I hopefully see you in Atlantic City. The Amazing Kraskin, everybody. Check oh, out his book, sure. The Adventures of the Amazing Kraskin. There's also a documentary. Oh, Frank, a lot of other my, my book, my 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 car and everything else, but I want—I always end by saying this, Frank. I will not say goodbye to you. We'll see each other again, Frank. Be the good Lord willing. Uh, amen. Amen, Kreskin. Thank you very much. You want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you may do so at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountaintop I took a trip on a sailing ship And when I reached Jamaica I made a stop But I'm sad to say I'm on my way Won't be back for many a day 
My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town. Down at the market, you can hear ladies cry out by long their heads they bear. Aki rice, salt fish are nice, and the rum is fine any time of year. But I'm Uh, The great Harry Belafonte, who passed away yesterday at the age of 96. This is one of my favorite Belafonte songs, um, Jamaica Farewell. And whenever I hear this song, I'm prompted to remember a story that Larry King told about it. Um, I'm going to play that story for you later. I know people have heard this before. I played it when Larry King died. I played it a whole bunch of times over the years. I still find this story so amusing, so I'm going to play that for you uh, a little bit later. So keep listening. That's your, the, the reward for listening will be that you get to hear that Larry King story about this farewell. Now, if, you're, if you don't care about the Larry King story or if you just are screaming and thinking, I can't bear to hear this story one more time, then consider this your warning. You can tune out before the end of the program and you don't have to worry about it. But um, we'll talk a little bit about Belafonte's passing uh, a little bit later as well. And if you have thoughts about it, you're welcome to call in. 800-848-9222. The big news here is twofold. One, um, we, you know, I'm now convinced that my wife is single-handedly supporting the Girl Scouts of America because I am, you know, working on... Um, the show uh, yesterday, I think my wife's cooking dinner. I hear the doorbell ring and I say, oh, my, who is this? It's got to be somebody. And you tell it looks like it's somebody coming to to uh, sell us something. I open the door and I immediately and I see a fella and his little girl. And I, I'm waiting to hear her say, hey, you know, do you want to buy some cupcakes to help me fund a trip to space camp or something? And, I, and I, I'm already rehearsing what I'm going to say, knowing that, of course, I'm going to buckle and, and not be able to say no to anyone. And sure enough, she said, oh, does Rachel Morano live here? I said, yes, that's my wife. And she said, oh, here are the Girl Scout cookies that she ordered. And she, he hands me, with his little girl, like three or four boxes of Girl Scout cookies, which neither my wife or I are really eating right now. So well, we bring in the Girl Scout cookies, and she said, well, Matt Blaze is going to be happy because you're going to have to take some of these to work, and we will give you the Thin Mints to take in. So she earmarked two boxes of cookies, one Thin Mint and one something else. And then as I'm walking out the door, she was annoyed at me for for something, and she stopped to let me know what she was annoyed at me for. And she said, all right, here, wait also. Put that other cookie back. Take both Thin Mints. So now we have two boxes of Thin Mints, and Rachel basically said, I hope this will satisfy Matt Blaze and diminish his complaining for a day. So those are in the kitchen, just so you're aware. I I appreciate that, but I actually don't really like Thin Mints. I see. All right. Well, good. There you go. Kenneth, have a Thin Mint. But Ken did eat some. There's no dairy in it, so you'll be okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So there you have it. Well, you complained a lot for a guy that doesn't even like Thin Mints. So. I didn't complain about Thin Mints. You you said there are there Thin Mints? Did I? No. Yes. Yes. Hundred percent. Maybe I asked about if there were, yeah, but well, I don't okay. like. Them. There are thin mints because those, those, those are the most popular yeah. girls. They're, they're out there now, and thank goodness. Um, I, just when I was worried, we were running out. The refrigerator has been restocked with another six jars of cream cheese. 
There's brand new cream cheese in the refrigerator. Thank goodness. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. warned about as consumers as americans when especially when you first open a bank account when you first get a credit card when you first start applying to colleges and looking at loans that you might need to apply to colleges one of the things that we first learn about is the importance of your credit rating and there are all sorts of instances where your credit rating can help you or hurt you depending on if it's good or if it's bad. And that's why you try to do things that will uh, increase your credit rating, like um, pay your bills on time, pay off your credit card in full, all sorts of things, not be late on anything, all things of that nature. And that's why if they you keep applying for 7, 8, 9, 10 credit cards, they ding your credit score and it can hurt you. So... One of the things that seems like it should make sense is that if you have a good credit rating, you should be able to get a pretty good rate on a loan. Now, what is the one loan, if you're a homeowner, that you have to deal with and worry about on a monthly basis for decades? Mortgage. I got a mortgage, and it's the first bill that we make sure that we pay. Uh, every every month. So you would think that if you have a good credit rating, that would help you. Well, what if I told you that there's a new rule that is poised to be adopted that would actually penalize you if you have a higher credit score? I'm not joking. So President Biden and his administration have a new rule that buyers with good credit will soon pay higher mortgage rates. Now, this is absolutely insane. You talk about an upside down policy. This makes no sense. Think about that. And this all is poised to take effect May 1st. So the federal rules on mortgage fees are going to mean high credit scores no longer make for better mortgage rates. I don't think that is fair at all. At all. In less than two weeks, mortgage fees on home loans backed by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae 
for people with poor credit will become significantly lower, which, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I want everybody to be able to if, if uh, not, not get bilked by their mortgage broker or whomever. The home, the fees on home loans backed by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae for people with poor credit will become significantly lower while the fees jump up for buyers with good credit. Um, this is, forget about unfair, which it is, and you know of my fondness, you know, for being fair to Flair, and I'm sure Ric Flair, given all the money he's borrowed and spent over the years, has pretty, pretty good credit. This would certainly not fall into the realm of being fair to Flair. Fair to Flair. And, but forget about being unfair. This is a tremendous risk economically. My concern is... This is going to lead people that are risky borrowers to take out loans they can't afford uh, for homes to either refinance or mortgages. And then we're going to see a situation similar to what we saw in 2008. Additionally, this basically um, this makes the system subsidize borrowers with risky credit. This is a bad policy step on every possible way. Now, again, I don't mind you taking away fees for people that are applying for mortgages. But why would you make this upside-down system where borrowers with good credit scores have to pay more? This is crazy. So how would this work? A person with a 620 FICO score and a down payment of 5% gets a one and three quarter fee discount on a 30 year mortgage. But a person with a FICO score of 740 or above with 15 to 20% down will see an increase of 75% in fees from current levels. And this applies to people of all income levels. So if you have a 720 FICO score and you're making 100 grand a year, you get those 75% fees increased. And it doesn't matter whether you make it 100 grand a year or $2 million a year, you're getting those fees increased just based on your credit score. This is crazy. This is upside down and idiotic. This is subsidizing risky borrowers. Um, the I, Look, I understand the push for affordable housing. I get it. I understand the need to um, try and help first-time homebuyers. I was a first-time homebuyer two and a half years ago, three years or whenever. But, I mean, you got to do it in a way that's not going to be unfair to people that have spent their entire lives trying to build up their credit score because they thought they were doing the right thing. You've got to do it in a way that doesn't force people with good credit and taxpayers in general to subsidize people with poor credit. And don't. And by the way, I know what it's like to be both. I've had in my life, I'm afraid to look at my credit score right now because I'm carrying a hefty balance on my credit card right, right now. But... I have been the guy with a very low credit score, and I have been the guy with a very high credit score. And I work, you work hard to improve your credit score. It takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of sacrifice. And this is just not fair 
to Flair or anybody else. The um, the rule goes into effect May 1st. Home buyers with a good credit score over 680 are going to pay about $40 more each month on a $400,000 loan and upwards, depending on the size of the loan. Those who make down payments of 20% on their homes will pay the highest fees. Those payments will then be used to subsidize higher-risk borrowers through lower fees. This is essentially, and you know me, I'm not one of these guys that loves to call everything socialist and demonize socialism because there are all sorts of aspects of socialism that are in the American economy these days that I'm not looking to get rid of. Medicare, for instance, Social Security, Medicaid, uh, those are interesting. Those are all parts of socialism that uh, I think have benefited America well. But what this is, is the socialization of risk. And as the Wall Street Journal editorial board put it the other day, This flies against every rational economic model while encouraging dysfunction in the housing market. And it puts the taxpayers at risk for higher defaults. I mean, I understand President Biden wants to get reelected. And I understand that, um, you know, low income housing or more affordable housing is a big part of his strategy to do that. But how many economies do you have to wreck to do this? So I really, uh, I would love to see the administration reverse course on this. But, I mean, I, my wife and I couldn't put 20% down for a house. The tw- Anybody that's in a position to put a 20% down payment, that requires a degree of financial discipline that encourages buyers to seek homes they can afford. That's why they get such a good rate. And they should. You don't want to encourage people buying houses they can't afford. It gives buyers some skin in the game when it comes to borrowing. No one wants to default on a mortgage when they could lose tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity that they built up in their homes. So uh, this is terrible, and uh, I, I just think it's a thing, something that the Biden administration or whomever the next administration is needs to reverse. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. All right. Uh, let me begin with Robert in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. I heard about this on uh, WABC Radio News today, and it was reported that it's going to be an extra 50 to $60 a month surcharge on your mortgage payment, whether you make it to a servicer, the bank directly, and it's going to be used to fund a new federal program that the Biden administration is going to come up with for minority borrowers. Well, it's That's not necessarily right. minority borrowers. It's it's anybody with oh, a low yes. credit. No, no, I just gave you what. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for listening. Um, I just told you exactly what it's going to be doing. It's going to be used to pay for the fees of people with credit scores under 640. Now, it's true that people who uh, have credit scores under 640 do tend to be minority 
but I don't want you to create a misimpression where they're just giving giving the, the high credit scores money to black black and Hispanic people that that apply for a mortgage. It's not the case. It's people with low credit score, and for a variety of factors, folks that are minorities tend to have low credit scores in this country at the moment. All right. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited about this. In 15 minutes, we are going to talk with um, Eileen Collins, retired U.S. Air Force colonel. And she's got a new book out that I've been reading uh, all, all a good portion of the day yesterday called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. And it's the story of her. The first American woman to command a space mission. So we're going to get into that uh, in a big way. I'm looking forward to that. 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Uh, Let me say three things, Frank. Number one, with this mortgage thing, it doesn't matter what they passed, how much it hurts somebody, half the country is going to vote for them again. I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. Number two, uh, am I going to have to bid? With against you for the Kreskin's uh, Lincoln, because I figured instead of him coming out and doing the show, maybe we could take him to AC and he could stand behind me the blackjack table, just poke me when I should take a card or not. Yeah, hey, I I, I, uh, I think that's going to be tough. Uh, I think that's going to be a tough one, Neil. Yeah, I think. the third one is uh, I actually forgot. So uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I forgot the third, Frank. So. That's what happens with senility when you get older. Hey, uh, anyway, uh, it's, thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. Appreciate that very much. Um, but uh, just on this mortgage front, I, I am somebody that always tries to find both points of view on any given object, on any given subject. And I really, I really feel this is almost indefensible. I'd love to know. Um, if you feel differently, I'd love to hear from you because, you know, I, I, I'm a guy that fights for the working class, but there's nothing a working class. There's nothing noble about taking people of all income levels who've spent a long time working to maintain and improve their credit scores and saying to them, tough, you shouldn't have done the right thing. You should have been in a position where. Instead of putting you down 20%, put down whatever you can afford, put down 5% and have a low credit score and we'll waive all these fees. I mean, it's just, it's almost like the thing that they put in the onion as a foolish government policy, especially given where we were in 2008. All right. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you one of the things that's frustrating. I'm looking at uh, the cover of uh, Eileen Collins' book and it's her in the, in the space, in the, you know, an astronaut suit. And what I'm thinking is I'm wondering how often they really use those astronaut pens. And my mom was just at the Kennedy Space Center in in Florida, and she was kind enough to – she brought me back some NASA socks, and she got Carmine – it's still a little big for him, but I'm looking forward to when he can wear it. She got Carmine a a basically a NASA – almost like a bomber jacket. It's really neat. And then uh, she got me – a space pen. And this, she gave this to me the day or the day before, I think it was the day of the ping pong tournament. And I was using it to maintain the brackets. Now, those of you that have run ping pong tournaments know what a, what a train wreck it can be. I mean, not, not a train wreck. It's not the right word, 
you know the level of attention and work and chaos that is required when you're the person running a tournament. You have to monitor the game that's going on now. You have to find whoever's playing next. You have to make sure that you're marking in the in the bracket who's advancing to the next round. You have to move the loser of the game that's happening now to the loser's round. So it's, it's very chaotic. And I was using this space pen. So I put this down somewhere on the day of the tournament. And for the life of me, I can't find where I put it. And I remember where I was. It was early in the tournament, and I was running upstairs to get somebody because my ping pong table's in the basement. And I said, oh, I don't know where my pen is. And Tom Brodo, to his credit, who's a listener but also was at the tournament, he says, oh, take, take my pen. And that pen served me well for the rest of the day. But I have not been able to find this space pen since then. Now, she did get two of them. So I'm going to, she said she would give me the other one as well. But I, I mean, these are expensive space pens. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure it's in the house somewhere. I do have another space pen that I use to write down what I, when I, when I dream and I can remember my dreams. I use that because I can still lie in bed and write it down like uh, Jerry Seinfeld. But I got I to gotta find that space pen. It was it's one of these things that I just obsess over and I've been thinking about it a great deal. All day today. 800-848-9222. Talking to Eileen Collins in a few minutes. Angelo is in New Jersey. Hello, Angelo. Hey, Frank. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. So uh, I was just wondering uh, the legality of of them passing this mortgage thing. You know, how are they able to... Uh, you know, to tab that on to everybody. Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's already some pending legal challenges to this. Unfortunately, uh, I think the fact that these are federally subsidized borrowers, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, may give the federal government a lot of leeway here in terms of making the regulations when it comes to fees. Additionally, uh, unfortunately, the courts and the and Congress have delegated an enormous amount of authority to these federal agencies. And these agencies, and this has gone on under both Republicans and Democrats, the agencies are basically making policies themselves. They're making law themselves that's never been passed by Congress. And it's nobody in America can even tell you how many laws there are because these agencies uh, just get into the position of constantly making more and more rules that have the force of law. So I hope there is a legal challenge to it, Angelo. But um, mm. I, I think that, um, unfortunately, the, there's been a lot of court deference to the uh, rulemaking abilities of these agencies. Great question, though, Angelo. Thank you. All right. Eileen Collins joins me next. We'll talk about space and more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When your legs don't work like they used to before. And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? 
This is Ed Sheeran thinking out loud, and this song and this artist is actually in the middle of a very heated legal fight right now. Uh, there's some allegation that Ed Sheeran might have stolen this song, and it's going to court. We've seen this before with mixed results. We're going to play you the song a little bit later that it was purportedly stolen from and let you be the judge. Just commit this one to memory. Well, I have been excited about this interview for a a while. Uh, Not only is our next guest somebody that has dedicated nearly her entire life to her country, uh, to the causes of science and space exploration, but she's really a model, uh, not just for women, uh, not just for New Yorkers, but for everybody, that you can achieve some extraordinary things if you uh, have a little bit of intellect and a lot of elbow grease, hard work, and determination. It's all chronicled in the book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to command a space mission. That woman is Colonel Eileen M. Collins, retired colonel in the Air Force, and as you might imagine, the first American woman to command a space mission. Colonel Collins, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for staying up late for us. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk with you. Now, astronaut was one of those professions that it was probably, other than firefighter or Superman, the most requested aspiration of kindergartners for many, many years. When did you decide to become an astronaut? Is it something you aspired to do since you were five, or is it, was it a natural progression of the way things were going for you in the military? Well, actually, I specifically decided in fourth grade that I wanted to be an astronaut. I just happened to be reading an article in a junior scholastic magazine about the Gemini astronauts, and I decided I wanted to be just like them. They were the coolest guys I think I had ever heard about. I might have been nine years old, maybe 10, (laughs) but they, they were pilots. They were test pilots, military pilots, engineers, and I just wanted to do that. You know, there were no women uh, astronauts back then. I just thought I'd be a lady astronaut. And so I sort of set my goals in that direction. And honestly, I never thought it would really happen. But I got to admit, in this, this it's a pretty great country that we live in. You can set your dreams high and, you know, sometimes you can reach them. Uh, no doubt so, about it. Uh, did you have a favorite Gemini astronaut? Well, I like Jim McDivitt for whatever reason. I just, you know, maybe because he was uh, featured in the article, but I actually met him many years later. He's passed away now, but I met him at an event in Tucson, oh, maybe 10 years ago, and he was just the nicest person, and I told him that he was one of my heroes, and of course, we got to be friends, so, you know, things uh, things work out that way sometimes. Your experience in the uh, space program, which I think dates back to about 1989, how did you find that? You'd been in the Air Force for uh, about a decade before that. How did you find your experience with NASA and the space program generally 
the same or different from the military? How did it compare to the Air Force? Yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting question because there was um, some differences. So the Air Force, you know, is a little more regimented and we're very uh, particular about using the chain of command. Uh, You follow the rules. Uh, If you don't follow the rules, then you better go report to your boss and tell him what you did and why you did it and, you know, confess. (laughs) And, you know, safety is always number one in the Air Force, you know, flying airplanes. And I was an instructor for many years, and I wanted to pass on that attitude of safety and, you know, just, you know, the attitude of structure and uh, following the chain of command to my students. And going to NASA, I was about 13 years uh, in the Air Force, and then I got assigned to NASA as an astronaut. And I think it was, uh, you know, pretty much the attitude of safety uh, was there, but I think it was a little more open communication and cross-flow across uh, the organization at NASA. But also as a woman, I think that uh, the women were a little more widely accepted as peers at NASA, and that may be just because the organization was younger and uh, the Air Force had been around for a while and, you know, the they had the old boys club, which, by the way, I really enjoyed working with the guys. I thought it was it was fun. And I uh, don't really recall having any major problems working with the guys. But I do think that there was a little bit of difference in the culture between the Air Force and NASA, you know, maybe, again, due to the fact that the uh, that NASA is just a little bit. Uh, younger organization. And that was uh, leads me to my next question. I think a lot of us have seen the film uh, Hidden Figures, where these women who worked at NASA as mathematicians, they experienced a, a significant amount of of sexism. Obviously, that was decades before you were uh, participating in the space program. What sort of uh, sexism, if any, did you find that you experienced in being a part of NASA in the in the 80s and the 90s? Well, I do want to say, first of all, about the hidden figures. You know, they are great role models. And the fact that they were there and they were doing the work that they were doing in the 1960s really said a lot. And I'm sure they faced some barriers, but I'll tell you, the fact that they were there was huge, huge progress. And, you know, what they've shown, I mean, they're, they're just great role models uh, for young people today, showing that they were able to do the work they did. But to really answer your question, you know, I honestly did not really face that much uh, sexism or pushback at NASA. I really felt like I fit in. Um, the only thing really that was different about being the first woman pilot, and I was the first woman commander of a space shuttle, I really think the only difference came from the outside. I got a lot more uh, requests for interviews, a lot more, I want to say, media attention Mm. than the guys did. But as far as working day to day, uh, you know, it was really uh, just what's the mission? What do we got to do to make it successful? And working together as a team. And I talk about that uh, in my book, I, I talk about mistakes I made, uh, how to, you know, decisions I made, conflicts, setbacks, uh, you know, and I think what I wrote in the book really, I think, applies to guys, as, you know, the, uh, men in the Air Force and at NASA, as well as women. And I think the, the part about the glass ceiling, you know, I was the first woman, that's true. But I think that a lot of the issues I faced are the same ones that the men faced. Oh, no, that's clear. And I, I think going back 
uh, to you, you chronicle your time at the Air Force Academy all the way to, uh, you know, all the way to, uh, you know, the, your retirement through through NASA. By the way, if people are uh, just or pilot training, I should say, um, uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Colonel Eileen Collins, the author of the book Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. She also happens to have spent 872 hours in space. She is in the Astronaut Hall of Fame and uh, has done a great deal of other things, but uh, we only have a four-hour program, so I'm not going to mention all of them. (laughs) Did you always strive to command a space flight, or was that just a natural progression of the work that you were doing as a pilot? Well, actually, that, I think, was actually a dream of mine, going back to when I first learned about the astronauts back in when I was a kid, back in the 1960s. I even remember watching TV shows like Buck Rogers. I don't know if you ever heard of Oh, yeah, who Buck, Buck Rogers, Rogers in the 25th is, century. I thought, you know, that's what I want to be. I want to go out and I want to have an adventure. I want to explore the Earth. I want to explore space. I want to go places no one else has been before. I want to go farther, faster, higher. And, you know, I want to be like Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And, you know, I always... Uh, for some reason, as a kid, just hanging around in the neighborhood, you know, being with my friends, uh, exploring, you know, the neighborhood. This is back in the days when your parents had no idea where you were, and I would just head out into the woods around my house, and we would explore. And we would have forts, and we would, you know, but you know, just, you know, play. And uh, I think my imagination was... Uh, really began in my childhood and the freedom that we had back in those days was was really great. Of course parents would never let their kids do that today because you know you just worry about their safety. But back in the 1960s it was uh, I, I think we had a lot more freedom. And I think because of that I I sort of have the explorer nature in me and even at my age now I read Books about explorers of of all kinds, you know, people that have explored all around the earth, uh, you know, back in the 1500s and, you know, the uh, right up until today. And the explorers that go out and I want to say the Apollo program, the astronauts that landed on the moon, uh, they took a lot of risks. Oh, yeah. And these, these men were just uh, incredibly brave and they were my role models. And again, I wanted to be just like them. And I think having role models is is really important. Yeah, well as um as the the star-studded cast of characters that uh that are all commenting on your on your book jacket all point out you're a uh, role model for many. General Lester Lyles uh, said that um, you're not only an American hero, but uh, the, the memoir should be must-reading for all young girls and boys in school and for every aspiring student at all levels. And you have similar quotes from Buzz Aldrin, Tom Hanks, uh, a lot of other folks as well. But um, you, it's interesting that you mentioned Captain Kirk because I got to interview William Shatner about his trip to space a couple of times. And... He said, and this surprised me, that one of the things that he felt when he went and looked at the Earth from space, and he wasn't there for 800 hours, he was there for maybe 10, 12 minutes, was that he felt sadness. And apparently 
this is a common thing uh, among people that travel to space. They call it the overview effect, where you get this strong emotional or mental reaction about the Earth and its place in the universe, and it shakes a lot of astronauts to the co- to the core. I'm curious, in your experiences going to space, did you ever experience anything like that? Well, you know, I... Uh, the times I was up, I flew four times on the space shuttle, and you're usually really busy for the first maybe 80% of the flight, and it's the last couple of days that you really have time to look out the window and reflect on the Earth, what you've done, and looking down on the Earth. It, it's a little bit scary when you see the Earth and how thin the atmosphere is. It's a tiny little layer of air. <clears throat> it's been called like an apple skin on an apple, using a metaphor there, that small layer of air is what's keeping us alive. And then you look out in the other direction and you just see the blackness of space and you realize we live on this planet. We're tiny little people <clears throat> and this planet is rotating and revolving around the sun. And it, it really blows your mind. You you learn that in school, but then when you see it, it, it can be a little bit scary You know, and I think that towards the end of a flight, there is a little bit of sadness about coming back because you, you know, I really enjoyed being in space, but I also missed my family. Sure. And I wanted to come home. And of course, I was, I wanted some lasagna and ice cream. So (laughs) (laughs) there was a little bit of that too. But then, you know, returning from the flight, you can uh, look up, uh, Buzz Aldrin wrote a book called Return to Earth, and he had some trouble adjusting when he came back, you know, having uh, been on the first mission to the to walk on the moon. But, you know, for me coming back, it was a little bit of a letdown after all those years of training. And now I, I did it. So what do I do next? Yeah. And so I decided to stay and fly another mission. And I think my second, third and fourth missions were a lot easier than my first one. One of the things that I remember vividly uh, 20 years ago, probably not as vividly as you remember it, but is the uh, Columbia Space Shuttle uh, tragedy. Now, you were following that very closely, and then about a year and a half after that uh, Columbia Space Shuttle blew up, you commanded NASA's return-to-flight mission after the Columbia disaster to test some of the safety improvements and resupply the International Space Station. For people that aren't aware, what are some of the lessons that NASA and maybe even other space agencies that other countries run that NASA learned as a result of that Columbia space shuttle tragedy? And is it safer for astronauts now than it was 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So you could write a book on the lessons learned. Uh, I'll answer the second part of your question first because it's it's quicker. Yes, NASA did learn a lot, and space travel today is much much safer safer than in the shuttle days. The shuttle did not have a crew escape system for for launch. For example, if uh, there was an explosion on launch, like during Challenger, they had no way to safely get out. Well, today's launch vehicles have a crew escape system, and that would be, uh, for example, the the uh, SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule has a crew escape system. Even the Russian Soyuz has crew escape. And the other thing that makes it safer is uh, the heat shield is protected on launch. And if you remember, the space shuttle was kind of hanging on the side of the tank there, and any debris could hit the 
tiles, which are our heat shield protection for when we return home. And that's what caused the Columbia accident. So today's launch vehicles are much safer. And, and what do we learn? I could go on and on, but let me just give you a maybe a top-level uh, quick answer. I think that we learned to have a better culture, to listen to each other, to have more of a humble attitude, and to be able to think more creatively. I think in the uh, maybe the 20 years plus years that we flew up to the uh, Columbia accident, we started thinking, oh, the shuttle's operational, we're going to do it this way, and we uh, didn't really open our mind to the fact that these strange things can actually cause an accident. You know, falling debris can actually break a heat shield, and people thought that wasn't possible. And some people thought it was possible, but, you know, maybe they weren't encouraged to Mm. speak up. So I think there's a lot of cultural lessons learned, and I actually have a whole speech on that uh, to you know, talk about what we learned from the Columbia accident that you can apply to your office, your life, your family, um, just being a better listener, uh, be humble and uh, be, be a creative thinker. Yeah, I, I you know, that's so funny because I am always encouraging people to be better listeners, but I would have never thought that that was part of the problem with the culture in the space program was listening. But I guess in the context that you explain it, it uh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, You've spent some time at the International Space Station way back to the time that it was still referred to as the Russian Space Station Mir. We've seen up until recently, a great deal of cooperation between American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts, not only at the International Space Station, but elsewhere as well. It's no secret there's a a lot of tension now between the United States and Russia. Are you concerned about the tensions not only between the U.S. and Russia, but the U.S. and China, and what that might portend for future collaborative international space ventures? Yes, I am very concerned about that. Um, I have friends in Russia. I've actually flown with Russians in space. Uh, They have very much, they're very much like us and love uh, space exploration. They love their jobs as cosmonauts. But ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, um, you know, we, we evaluated, should we continue working with the Russians? And it was just not feasible to, you can't break that space station apart into the Russian side and the American side. That really can't be done. So we're continuing to work with them. But as the years go by, we're, you know, Russia is saying once we uh, decommission our international space station, they're not going to continue to cooperate with us. They are uh, moving towards cooperating with China. And so so this is not a good thing for the United States. Um, I also know that uh, as, as a NASA astronaut, we were not allowed to cooperate with China. Um, although we did cooperate with Russia, you know, that was a national program. We were not allowed to uh, travel to China in a, a business, uh, uh, I want to say, of business nature or uh, work with the Chinese in their space program at all. I mean, we're forbidden from doing that, and that goes back 20 years. So, uh, and, and that was really dictated to us by Congress. And it's still the same way today. And uh, Russia is moving to working with China, so this is going to cause a problem down the road. 
And I would like to see, I mean, ideally, have all of these countries cooperate, but much of this is out of our hands. As astronauts, you know, I think we're a little more idealistic. We uh, remember that when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, he said, we come in peace for all mankind. That's our attitude towards space travel. I don't think China has the same attitude Mm. towards space travel. I'm not sure that they would... uh, put their flag on the moon and say, we come in peace for all mankind. You, they might you, put their flag on the moon and say, we own it. <laughs> you, well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you, do you get the sense that the Chinese motivation in being a spacefaring country is more about uh, acquiring certain uh, rare earths or, uh, you know, the different things that would, would bring material wealth to China? Well, there are materials on the moon that I, I believe would be uh, worth it, worth the investment in mining on the moon. But we don't know right now exactly what's up there. I and mean, we know there's helium-3. We know there's water. Um, you know, the water is, is kind of obvious. You can use that for many things. The helium-3 can possibly be used as a source of energy. And, you know, who knows what else is up there uh, that might be of value And China is working towards, in fact, they're doing almost the same thing we are. They've picked their landing sites on the south pole of the moon that are similar to our landing sites that we've selected. And we we are saying we're going to land there in uh, late 2025, possibly uh, that might be delayed. Um, China's going to be a little bit behind us is what it looks like right now. But if we don't have the funding or if we have problems with our development, China could get get to the moon before we get back there. Talking with Eileen Collins, her new book is Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are are sold. One of the, uh, I find exciting, aspects about the future of the space program is that you see a lot of nations continuing with their space program, but you're also seeing a great deal of private sector investment. This got a lot of attention last week with the SpaceX Starship from Elon Musk, that rocket, they say the most powerful rocket ever built, blowing up after a couple of minutes after it was launched. Are you optimistic about the future of private sector space travel? Are you concerned about it? Where do you see private sector space travel going? Yeah, I am very optimistic, and I am very supportive of private, whether you call it private or commercial. The These companies like SpaceX are working with NASA. It's a partnership, and we're going to be able to go a lot faster with them. And one of the big differences the private companies can raise capital. They can go out and get, uh, you know, private money to help them go faster. NASA can't do that. And one of the problems we had in the space shuttle program, it was the space shuttle was great, by the way. It, it was, uh, I, I would say, despite the fact that we had the accidents, it was a very, very successful program. But all of our money came from Congress. And if you had a setback, uh, maybe Congress could hold your money back. And, you know, that... It it worked okay for a while, but if you want to go faster, you must have private industry. So the difference today is these rockets are owned and operated by the private company. They're not owned and operated by NASA. Instead, NASA is a customer. You know, we'll pay for a launch or we'll pay for a particular astronaut to uh, go up to the space station on these rockets. Um, By the way, SpaceX is also building the lander for uh, the next moon landing. They will own that and operate it, and we will pay them by each mission. And the other thing that's interesting is uh, private uh, individuals can pay SpaceX if they have enough money 
uh, in fact, there's already a crew that has paid for a flight to circle the moon in in one of uh, SpaceX's rockets. Mm. And that'll be a couple of years down the line. You know, very these are people with a lot of money, but, you know, that's they will be the first people to fly in space. The more we fly, the cheaper it will get and the safer it will get. And more and more people like you and me can uh, you know, afford a flight, maybe not in my lifetime, but I think that eventually uh, people with, in lower income brackets will be able to pay for a flight into space. And, and I think all of this is good. This this can this can as long as we do it safely, and we don't you know take I want to say unusual or unnecessary risks. It's going to be it's going to be good, and it will help our country overall. Uh, you appreciate you being so generous with your time. I know it's late at night, but a couple other quick questions that I just want to ask you. Yesterday, the director general of the European Space Agency told Axios that he wants to see other space agencies consider accepting people with disabilities into their astronaut corps. And uh, they're going to have someone who was a Paralympian whose right leg was amputated become what they're calling the first para-astronaut. John McFall is his name. And essentially he's saying that a physical handicap should not stop you from becoming an astronaut. Do you agree with that? Do you think people that have some sort of physical disability, maybe a lost leg or another lost limb, should be included for consideration for future space flights? Well, you are taking more risk when you send a person into space with a disability. So that is a risk. They need to they need to understand that before they – I mean, this is the private company as well as the individual that wants to go. Before they sign up to go, they need to fully understand what the risk is. And, you know, that's what I did on my flights as an astronaut. And, by the way, people with disabilities, I think that they should certainly have the right to go up and, you know, fly one flight or, uh, you know, maybe a couple of flights – but there's a difference between someone flying once or twice and a professional astronaut. So a professional astronaut you know, maybe can be compared a little bit to an airline pilot or a military pilot. You do it as your job, and you have got to be able uh, to safely operate and, and help people that may be having trouble. So, as you know, someone with a disability would not sit in the exit row on an airplane. So you just if you keep it in that perspective, yes, these people should be able to fly, but they have to understand the risk and they have to be able to do it safely. I, I know this may seem like a silly question, but I, th- I, don't, I, think, I don't think the audience would forgive me if I didn't ask you uh, about it because last week or the previous week, we spent a fair amount of time looking at a new documentary that explores the things that Edgar Mitchell has said. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, of course, the uh, sixth man to walk on the moon, a very de- uh, decorated naval officer and one of the real pioneers of the Apollo project. And he basically was very adamant about his views on UFOs, and he stated publicly that he was 90% sure that many of the thousands of UFOs recorded since the 40s belong to visitors from other planets. Do you have any take on these UFO sightings and the UFO phenomenon in general? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of this in the news lately, so I've been thinking about it a lot. I have not actually seen anything myself that I couldn't explain, but clearly some of these videos... They're showing some type of energy that cannot be explained. So I believe that there are things going on in the world, uh, in in the atmosphere and in space, that we have not yet been able to uh, identify what they are. You know, maybe we don't have the sensors 
Maybe it's in, you know, some energy spectrum that we haven't been able to detect yet. So certainly there are things going on. I honestly don't think it's little green men, like, watching us from a distance. But you know, I, I want to keep an open mind. <laughs> I'm asked this question a lot, so I think it's important that the government does not cover mm. things up. I think that people are mature enough to uh, handle whatever maybe the U.S. government finds that something strange is going on. Let people know about it because it's amazing what you can learn from just people that observe in their backyard and maybe pay attention to this stuff. We need to get it out there and uh, talk about it. Colonel Eileen Collins, author of the book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. Thank you so much. I would love to talk again soon. I have a lot of other questions for you, not only based on the book, but what's happening in the space program more generally. Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Eileen Collins, check out the book. Uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll try and take your call straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. What do you think? How similar is this to the song we played 20 minutes ago? Ed Sheeran goes on trial for allegedly copying this Marvin Gaye song. They are saying that song that we played for you, um, Thinking Out Loud, was plagiarized from this Marvin Gaye song. Now, we've seen cases like this before, just recently. Uh, jury found that Robin Thicke and Pharrell plagiarized Marvin Gaye on Blurred Lines. You know, I wonder if the Marvin Gaye family is just sitting around listening to all the popular music and say, oh, that sounds a lot like a Marvin Gaye song. 100%. You think that's what they're oh, doing? After they won that case? Yeah, I bet. Because I didn't think they had a case in that one at all. No, I thought that was pretty similar. Similar, same style. But, but it's like saying every disco song that uses a 4-4 beat is the same. Yeah. Uh, That's what I thought. This song, I think, is much more of a stretch. I don't think this is uh, at similar enough to be considered plagiarism, personally. I mean, right? I, I'm, I, I mean... Uh, I don't buy it. Mar- the, the other song uh, and the Robin Thicke song, that was... Much more evident, yeah, in my this, opinion. This is a big stretch. Uh, so I, I'm shocked this is even going to trial. I would have thought this would have gotten thrown out uh, before trial. All right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter where I am still unverified, at Frank Morano. You know, it's funny. Yesterday I was on Twitter, and I saw a whole bunch of verified people responding to my tweets. And I'm so trained to thinking that the verified people matter. And I read, oh, right. Now everybody's verified. So I, it was a disappointing moment. All right, uh, not not that you shouldn't be verified or unverified, whatever. But follow me, whatever you're doing, at Frank Moreno. All right, next hour we got a lot of fun stuff. Keep asking questions. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I, um, we, last week, we, uh, last week, last night we spent, or yesterday morning, depending on your perspective, we spent a fair amount of time talking about the uh, Tucker Carlson situation, and yesterday we spent a great deal of focus on why he was let go, and I said we would revisit it, and this is the revisitation of it. So one of the things that I'd like to ask you Yesterday, we explored why he was let go. And look, we have no idea. And it may take a while to figure out exactly why Rupert Murdoch did what he did and decided to fire his biggest star. But the two things that I'd like to focus on now are two questions that I'm curious about and a lot of people have been asking me about. So I'm sure a lot of other folks are curious about. One, what do you think Tucker Carlson does next? I happen to think the answer is fairly obvious. I alluded to this yesterday. Curious what you think. Two, what would you like to see Fox News do next at 8 p.m.? It could be one specific personality. It could be a left versus right debate show in the tradition of Crossfire or something else. Those are the two questions I want you to focus on. So some people... And by the way, I got great feedback to our discussion on Tucker Carlson yesterday, including, and I was happy about this, I got a lot of emails from folks, and if you want to email me, you can do so at frank.morano at redapplepodcastnetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redapplepodcast, no, not podcast, redappleaudionetworks.com. Sorry, first day with the new email address, so hopefully it works. But anyway, um, I got a lot of emails from folks who said that even though they disagreed with my opinion on Tucker Carlson, they enjoyed hearing the segment and appreciated the fairness with which we which with, with which he, we handled it. So some people close to the network suggested that the cause of Tucker's firing with these redacted messages revealed in the Dominion lawsuit that insulted his bosses. Others pointed to sexist language that could have fueled a harassment lawsuit by a former producer. Regardless of the reason, the result for the Republican Party, where Tucker Carlson had become very much a power broker, is clear. After uh, Rupert Murdoch is very much in charge of Fox News. And whoever he picks at 8 o'clock, I would think it's going to be someone that supports his agenda for the presidential race, which at this point includes anybody but Trump. Probably DeSantis. So yeah, remember, Roger Ailes was very much in charge of Fox News. And then, uh, I mean, he was so powerful, Roger Ailes, 
that Paul Ryan, um, Ben Ben Smith writes about this in his Semaphore column. Paul Ryan, and this was witnessed by Ben Smith. Every big Republican leader had to make the pilgrimage to twelve eleven Sixth Avenue to curry his the the Roger Ailes' favor. Ben Smith writes that he once saw Paul Ryan between his vice presidential candidacy and his speakerhood nodding along soberly to one of Roger Ailes' more paranoid riffs, flattering Ailes with stuff that he clearly didn't buy. And Ailes was a tough leader who left no doubts about who was in charge of the network or what he wanted. In 2005, he clashed with Nat Lachlan Murdoch. Rupert's son, who's now in charge, and Ailes won, not Murdoch's son. So Lachlan had to move back to Australia. In his day, Ailes, not O'Reilly, not Van Susteren, not Hannity, or not Combs, was the one who could make politicians and break them. And with Ailes' departure, the center of power moved out of Manhattan. Rupert Murdoch promoted another favorite, Tucker Carlson, And as Carlson took off, influence shifted to rural Maine and coastal Florida, where Carlson picked his own favorites to be the leaders of a new populism. People like Tulsi Gabbard, J.D. Vance, Viktor Orban. I'll add, because they come on, I've interviewed them so often, Colonel Douglas McGregor, uh, Professor Stephen Cohen. Carlson, and Ben Smith uses this analogy, and I think he's right. Carlson was, in a way, the Donald Trump of of Fox. And I think whoever replaces him is unlikely to do that. His replacement, it, it could be Brian Kilmeade, it could be Jesse Waters, Pete Hegseth, someone maybe like uh, Clay Travis, will be more like a DeSantis person. The one exception to that, would be if Tulsi Gabbard, who I think has done a great job filling in for him, if she is named as the replacement. Now, that is my hope. I don't see any scenario in which that happens for two reasons. One, I don't think a lot of the mainstream Republican audiences would necessarily embrace her because of all the progressive positions she's had on things like universal health care and things of that nature and criticisms of Donald Trump and so forth. But I also think... My contention is that part of the reason that Tucker Carlson is off the air is because his messaging on a daily basis was so at odds with what corporations want to hear, with what the military industrial complex wanted to hear, what Fox's advertisers wanted to hear, what Fox's shareholders wanted to hear. The global elite, the global financial elites that run the world. Um, whether it's military, whether it's Wall Street, whether it's real estate, whether it's um, big pharma, they hated what Tucker was doing. And I think Tulsi Gabbard would be far too similar to Tucker in that respect. So uh, that's my first question for you is what you think Fox should do and what you would like them to do. So you can give me a prediction and a preference. My preference, as I've stated, is Tulsi Gabbard. My prediction is they're going to go with a Pete Hegseth type. Uh, if not Pete Hegseth himself. Now, um, 800-848-9222, if you want to comment on who should replace Tucker. The other interesting thing I find is 
the speculation about what Tucker Carlson would do next. Because to me, the obvious choice is for him to go independent like O'Reilly, like Megyn Kelly, like Glenn Greenwald, and make 30, 40 millions of dollars a year doing a podcast, writing a column with a substack, and th- doing some book deals on top of that, making his own TV shows, making his own podcast that he distributes, he produces, and that stations can carry if they want. I think that's the most obvious answer. However, other people are saying other things. Other people are saying that maybe Tucker Carlson should run for president. Maybe Other people are saying maybe Tucker Carlson should run for vice president. Um, one of the people that joked about that, or at least mentioned it, was Greg Gutfeld on The Five. He, this is what he said yesterday. I don't think Joe Biden, even though he may announce tomorrow, I don't think by the time you get to the end of the year, he's actually going to run. And when they switched the calendar, so South Carolina goes before Iowa and all this, that was a move by the Congressional Black Caucus. And I think somebody like Susan Rice, who's got strong credentials with Obama and with Biden, looks at that and says, why aren't I the president? Wait, do you she think that Susan Rice is going to take on Kamala Harris for the nomination? I think, I think there is a chance. Mm-hmm. I'll that, watch yeah. it. And then so in 2024, it'll be, it'll be uh, Susan Rice versus Tucker Carlson. <laughs> okay. Now, I think he was joking, but a lot of people have seriously suggested it. Would you go for that? What would you think of that? What do you think he'll do next? Um... So over his 14 years at the network, Tucker Carlson really became best known for inviting, not best known, but at least partially known, inviting liberal guests to his show and confronting them over the day's controversies live on the air. Now, in more recent years, he'd become a staunch critic of the Republican establishment and of the U.S. government in general. And he would air segments critical of war, uh, domestic intelligence agencies, all sorts of other things. And he had no problem getting into controversies on a regular basis. He's drawn repeated advertising broadcasts, uh, I mean, uh, boycotts, the, probably the most notable of which is when he said that immigration made America dirtier. He's aired segments that have drawn accusations of racism, including a segment, uh, a suggestion that a Tennessee lawmaker uh, named Justin Pearson only got into an elite college because he was black. By the way, big shout out to all our listeners in Tennessee, WUCT in Nashville, and of course KWAM, KHAM in Memphis, um, which is a growing part of the Todd Starnes network, which we're being, which we're honored to be on. So, um, he did not get a chance to sign off to viewers and say goodbye, which I think is clearly an indication he left on bad terms. I think that um, that is a really disgraceful thing to do on the part of Fox. Just as I said yesterday with CNN, I think both CNN should have given Don Lemon a chance to say goodbye and Fox News should have given Tucker Carlson the same opportunity they gave Shepard Smith. To say goodbye. So you have many on the left. I played the comments yesterday from AOC and the women on The View celebrating this news, criticizing Carlson for spreading conspiracy theories, spreading racism. Some argue that Dominion's lawsuit helped bring him down. Others argue Foxer is going to be just fine and that Tucker's successor could be even worse than Tucker is. On the right, it's also a mixed bag. You have many on the right criticizing the move 
saying Fox News could collapse without Tucker Carlson. O'Reilly, one of the people that has been saying that Fox is going to really not do well. Some uh, are criticizing Tucker, saying he brought this fire, even on the right. Some on the right are criticizing Tucker, saying he brought this firing on himself. I think Larry in Brooklyn basically embodied a lot of the right-wing people that are happy about this. And others are praising Carlson's break from the mainstream media. And that's kind of where I am. And I think this is going to be good for him because he's going to be independent. So, um, you know what I, I really enjoyed reading is Isaac Saul's column yesterday, The Tangle, because he said, and I don't think he really necessarily agreed with Tucker's Carl, uh, Tucker Carlson's politics much, but he said, Carlson's show regularly offered value, but it seemed to be getting darker and darker. Those were his, his words. But I appreciated the fact that at least he acknowledged that Tucker's show brought value. And... um what what he says, and I agree with this to some extent, and that's why I think maybe he could have a future in politics, perhaps. He said what's saddest is just how much potential the show had and how influential it could have been in a more positive direction. And Isaac Saul says, in a sea of news that's both predictable and boring, Carlson, and this is really my view to a T, was one of the few... TV hosts who could still surprise me. He didn't shy away from picking a fight. He was one of the only conservative pundits on the planet who could criticize Trump and Mitt Romney in the same breath without upsetting the base or the establishment. And he did it regularly. He also did genuinely valuable work, like when he recently got all the Republican presidential candidates to share their views on Ukraine. Who else in the media could have done that? I don't think anybody. Um, And he goes on to say, Isaac Salt, that at his best, he made excellent television. He brought on guests he disagreed with. You know, that is a great point. His interview with Bill de Blasio was Bill de Blasio's finest moment of the presidential campaign. It was also Tucker Carlson's finest moment. And vehemently went to war with them. Remember the situation with Phil Murphy? He brought on guests you think he'd agree with and then embarrassed them, like Ted Cruz. He covered stories that a lot of the national news outlets... Totally ignored. And he took fresh angles on news stories that every other network droned on and on about. And he took that unpredictable stance. And as Isaac Saul says, um, on his best days, he was a skeptic and a fierce interviewer. And he displayed ideological consistency in taking some stances that were oppositional to Republicans. Now, he does say that in recent years, the interviews he did on his show were fewer and fewer. And when he did interview guests... Like Kanye West, Carlson hid footage from viewers that subsequently changed the interview. He produced uh, and aired a lot of nonsense. Uh, and it, I, we talked about some of it recently. And, um, you know, there was a darker tone to the show uh, of late a little bit. But I still, still think it had a great deal of value. So nobody knows why. Tucker Carlson got fired, but I'm curious what you'd like to see him do next. I'm curious what you'd like to see Fox do next. We're going to talk about uh, campaign finance and the 75th anniversary of Israel uh, with Dan McMillan. Believe it or not, he's an expert on both. We'll get into it in a few minutes. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to JR in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Hi, good morning. Uh, Listen, so 
remember when uh, the television show Roseanne replaced Becky? And they're just like, don't worry about it. We'll put in a new actress. Right. right. They, they kind of look the same. That's what Fox is going to do. They'll follow a little bit of their old script with Carlson, and then they'll just kind of segue out of that view because I think now the semi-liberal or the more like accepting of a liberal view like Carlson used to used to do uh, is is more popular and will get more viewers. I don't think Fox really cares if you're a hardcore conservative or if you're a, a hardcore liberal as long as you have the show on. They don't care. It's a script, just like anything. It's not the Frank Morano show well, where you're allowed to actually kind of, you know, say what's on your mind. You you have to follow a script, like The Housewives. Yeah. Uh, so give give me an idea of the kind of show that you see them replacing him with. Like a, I see them replacing him with a Tulsi Gabbard, who is a who who a lot of uh, a lot of conservatives see as almost like a flip flopper. Like, oh, we're pulling her from the other side a little. She's showing the holes in the Democratic Party. She's showing holes in the liberal system. But she's not really conservative enough. They'd rather take the steel than take the easy Interesting, way. interesting. I would be uh, pretty pleased with that programming move, but I don't see it happening. You know, I don't see it happening at all. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Florida. Hello, Joe. Hey, how's it going this morning? It's going all right. Well, you know, I, I, I would like to see Mark Levin take that spot, but I don't think he would want to do it. Well, I mean, look, um, everybody's got a price, right? So if they paid him three, or, if they paid him five or six million dollars a year, well, I mean, even that might not be enough. It's true; it is a lot of work, and he's already uh, got a whole other. Uh, got a, he's got two or three other day jobs plus his writing. So you, you, yeah, he would be great, though. He'd be he'd do a great job. That's for sure. And then also um, with the music. George Harrison was sued for My Sweet Lord, and it was exactly He's So Fine. Did uh, they—how did that turn out, that lawsuit? He had to pay. He did? Yeah. Really? I didn't know that. Or if I did know that, I'd forgotten that. Thank you, Joe. Hey, Joe, what do you think Tucker Carlson should do next? He could work in politics, yeah. You think so? Well, it is interesting. I think— Unless he's going to run for U.S. Senate, which in a state like Maine would be tough for him, Florida's a little easier, or president or vice president, he has so much more influence in the media than he does in the political realm, in my opinion. 800-848-9222. Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Yeah, uh, before I say where I think Tucker should do, uh, last night on Greg Kelly, he had, you know, pointed out that Tucker released some of those January six tapes and then he was going to release more and Chuck Schumer came out and was basically threatening Tucker, you know, so that may have something to do with it because he never aired the rest of the January six tapes. So I think more might come out with that, but uh, I think he should go to Newsmax and go up and just crush, try to, Crush Fox. I think he'd be great at, on Newsmax. Well, but that's I don't interesting. Know if that's gonna happen. I, I'm sure Chris Ruddy yeah. would would love that. And I, thank you, Ray. You know what? It's interesting though. Newsmax has not bought into where Tucker is, and quite frankly, where I am on the Russia Ukraine conflict. They are all gung ho um, for supporting 
arming the Ukrainians and sending troops. So I'm not sure how clearly that's the Newsmax editorial bent. And I'm not sure how um, Tucker would fit in to that, quite frankly. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. I promise not to forget your name again. Uh, Justin Wells, you know, Tucker's producer, is also got the executive producer of the show. So it was a shakeup not just in front of the camera. Oh, yeah. Behind Great the point. camera. Great if point. you look at the whole thing, how, how, it, how it works there at Fox, you know, for people on the outside, it's, it's kind of hard to look at it because the way each show is compartmentalized. They each have their own little fight system. And actually, Frank, you ought to send the tape in. You know, uh, I'm, I'm serious. I think they're actually at a loss as to who could replace it. Curtis might beat you to it, you know. Uh, you might want to send a tape in. I'm, I'm serious, you know. Deep down inside, you never know what Rupert Murdoch's going to do. Uh, I think Tucker is probably sleeping late now and enjoying his family a little bit more. That's probably what he's doing right at this moment, maybe even listening to us for all we know. But at the end of the day, when you think about it, and I don't have any inside information with the former people I worked for there, uh, it is it is just probably, you know, a change in pace. And they've done this before. They've done it with other people, you know. Uh, but there is one consistent thing that, that basically kind of looks at it. There always seems to be an HR problem or a case filed against somebody, and then they're gone. And it seems to be consistent with, uh, with with Fox, unfortunately. It just may be coincidence that that, that happened, you know, Abby uh, filing, uh, filing that case against him, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, call booker, uh, basically, of the show. And uh, it, it's kind of kind of sad when you think about it, but, but that's the way sometimes these things go, you know. Relationships end up and, and it goes down. But when you think about it, you know, he just bought a new $5 million house right beside his compound. Oh, no, he's going to be just fine. As I said, as I said uh, uh, yesterday, I think he's going to end up making a lot more uh, money because of this. So I definitely don't think he's going to be hurting. Thank you for the the endorsement there, Mike. I appreciate that. Uh, I I much prefer radio, I think, for obvious reasons. 800-848-9222. Dennis is in New Jersey. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Frank. I really enjoy your show. I, I think what should happen to balance out the networks is to have them switch jobs. Have Tucker take Don Lemon's job and have Don <laughs> Lemon come over, <laughs> come over to Fox. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I don't see Don Lemon fitting in well at Fox, although uh, Tucker did spend a long time at CNN, and he did very well there. Very different type of show when he was on CNN or shows, because he had a few different incarnations. Than, um, than he was doing on Fox, that's for sure. All right, before we get to Dan McMillan, Chris is on Long Island. Hello, Chris. Uh, quickly, the guy kind of stole my thunder. Three things I'm going to give you. Two will not happen. One will definitely happen. I think Jesse Waters is the obvious. He's going to be in that 8 o'clock spot. I would almost bet anything on that. You know, I, move s- him up to- I told someone yesterday that that's what I could see them doing as well. And then what do you think they put in his slot? Uh, and who who would they put in his slot? In, in Jesse you know Ward. I would like? All right. You know what I would like to see? But it's not going to happen. I don't get home in time, but it's a good show. The five would be good to move up. That's the number one rated show is the five. So I wonder if they're going to do anything with that. Because I don't know if it would fit in at the eight o'clock slot. But that is supposedly their most popular show, even more popular than Tucker Carlson. So 
I wonder if that's going to figure into it at all. Interesting. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk democracy dollars in a minute. Some of you may remember Dan McMillan. He's been on the show before uh, talking about campaign finance. Strikes me as a pretty important day to talk about this because President Biden officially kicked off his reelection. And uh, he was on recently also talking about uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day and uh, the the importance of what happened in the Holocaust and remembering all of that. Struck me as a pretty important week to have him on because of the uh, 75th anniversary of the State of Israel. Maybe we'll squeeze in a little conversation on both. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you have questions, we'll try and get them in. Dan McMillan, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight, ABBA singing about money and more money. Yesterday officially kicked off President Biden's re-election and a lot of experts predict that uh, this upcoming presidential election, especially if you consider the U.S. Senate and congressional elections beneath it, will be the most costly ever. The most costly that we've ever had in the history of the republic, even more costly than the last one, which was the most costly ever. And if you think about it, that's so strange because the presidential election anyway is going to come down to probably four states and not terribly large states, probably Georgia, Arizona, Nevada and, um, you know, Arizona. So, I mean, to think that we're going to spend literally billions of dollars essentially trying to persuade voters in four states to choose between Biden and Trump, it's just, on the one level, absolute lunacy. The other interesting thing that I heard from a lot of people, and this has been reflected in some polling, is that how come we can't have a better choice than Biden and Trump A lot of Democrats don't want Biden to be the nominee. A lot of Republicans don't want Trump to be the nominee. And a lot of independents are frustrated that this is what we're likely going to be ending up with. So I really love looking at ways not to replace Biden, not to replace Trump, but to replace the system that has created Biden and Trump. And I think... Until we make some fundamental reforms to the political structure and how candidates are selected and how campaigns are conducted, 
then we're just going to keep ending up with candidates that people feel are at best mediocre. So it struck me as an opportune time to revisit one of the more fascinating campaign finance proposals that we've heard about in some time. It's called uh, Democracy Dollars. And the man who is uh, pushing that all over the country is uh, Dr. Dan McMillan, political expert, former professor, former prosecutor, also the author of a terrific book, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. Dan, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Oh, it's so great to see you again, Frank. Dan, uh, before we talk about democracy dollars and its place in uh, society today, uh, last time you were here, we were talking about the Holocaust. This this week, it is the 75th anniversary of the state of Israel. And uh, just remind people, if you can, how the Holocaust led to, at least in part, the formation of the state of Israel. Well, I think that that it did a lot to sort of neutralize diplomatic opposition, you know, to founding the Jewish state. Uh, it also, you know, the state of Israel was, was I think, strengthened uh, militarily and otherwise by uh, so many Jewish refugees from Europe who said, now we really have to get out of Europe. We need our own country. So I think those played a role. A lot you know. of folks talk about the refugee crisis that went on uh, during Nazi Germany and America's role in that situation. And a friend of mine who lives in Israel, she pointed out to me recently, and I don't know that I fully realize this, that today there's really no such thing as a Jewish refugee because of Israel and that Israel will welcome Jews from all over the planet. So does the fact that Israel exists uh, obviate the kind of refugee crisis that we saw in the 30s and 40s? I hadn't thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I do want to recommend how could this happen. I've gotten a lot of feedback from uh, listeners who have uh, either heard me talk about the book or heard our previous conversations and then uh, gone out and gotten the book. And overwhelmingly, uh, almost to a person, all of them have said they found it really helpful. So I'll recommend it again. How could this happen? Pleasure, Explaining Thank the Holocaust, you very much. Yeah. Uh, by Dan McMillan. Now. Uh, let us talk about uh, what is what democracy dollars is now for folks that did not hear our initial conversation about this. Um, well, before we get into what it is, okay, what's the problem with campaign finance in this country today? The, the problem, Frank, is that our government is for sale to high dollar campaign donors, and this is not government by the people, and it's been going on for decades. But in a way, the problem has kind of skyrocketed off the charts. Uh, in the last 10 years, and especially just since 2016. I mean, the the cost of the federal elections, the amount of money spent to buy influence in Washington by helping candidates, um, more than doubled in constant inflation-adjusted dollars from 2016 to 2020, from $7 billion to $14.4 billion. Um, and all, th- all three of the last three cycles, you know, 18, 20, and 22, shattered fundraising and spending records from before. And in a way, you could say that the, the money problem has become more, more than twice as grave as it was only six years ago, seven years ago. Uh, the, the, I guess another way of putting it is, you, you know, you can't mount a serious campaign, even, like, say, to get into the House of Representatives. I think it's hard to do that with less than $2 million dollars. For the Senate, the minimum price of admission is $10 million. Uh, campaigns of 20, 30, 40 million are, are far more common. The White House, uh, I think it's a cool billion, you know, 
as <laughs> it's kind of almost the ante, you know, to get into the game. And what it means is that, you know, where does this money come from? It doesn't come from me. Uh, I don't think it comes from you. It doesn't come from most of the people in our audience. It comes from a small number of Americans, the kind of people who can write checks for 50000 100000 half a million, and so forth. And, and really, that's something that I don't think gets talked about enough because those same entities that are in positions to raise large amounts of money or to write checks for large amounts of money, they also control a lot of the advertising on television, radio. They own a lot of the newspapers. That's right. And uh, they control a lot of the narrative in this country. They fund a lot of the think tanks. So unless you're an enlightened, wealthy philanthropist, you really – are going to do very well in the system as it exists now. And and folks always wonder, well, gee, why do politicians that champion this issue or that issue their whole careers, why do they take money from those same special interests that they're going to be regulating and oftentimes uh, change their tune on that sort of a thing? I mean, one example, and this is bipartisan, but Hillary Clinton was a champion of uh, socialized medicine. Now, you could have a discussion about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Then, when she was in the Senate, she became the largest recipient of donations from the healthcare industry. All of a sudden, when she was in the Senate, you didn't hear a word about socialized right. healthcare. You could say the same thing about uh, Obama. You could say the same thing about Trump. Whoever your favorite politician is, chances are they've changed their tune because they're beholden, at least in some respect, to special interests. So now that folks have an idea of what the problem okay. is, what is your proposal? So it's it's an idea that's been out there, for, you know, it was proposed by a couple of really smart guys at Yale Law School. Um, the, the concept is wonderfully straightforward. Our, you know, our problem is that the only people who've got any say in our politics anymore are big donors. So we can address this problem by making ourselves the donors. And the way this would work in practice uh, for every federal election cycle, uh, the federal government would give each of us, each registered voter, an online account of campaign cash. You can't take the money out and spend it, but you go online to your account and assign these democracy dollars to the candidates you want to support. And suddenly, when they get to Washington, uh, politicians will keep doing what they're doing now, taking care of their donors. Only if we're the donors, they take care of us the way you know it's supposed to be under our constitution, You know, government by the people. Uh, it's been tried. It's not just a theory. They've been using it for city elections in Seattle since uh, 2017. It's worked very well, had good results, and uh, and it's building momentum all across the country at the local and state level. A lot of my particular effort, my organization is focusing on the federal level. A level, although I'm also involved in work in New Hampshire. But um, it was passed by ballot initiative in Portland, Maine, Oakland, California, last year. It's uh, efforts underway in several cities around the country. Looks like uh, democracy dollars for state elections in Minnesota is headed for easy passage. And there's been an effort in New Hampshire as oh, well. So this is uh, catching momentum in a, a lot of different places around the country. It is. It is. And it's interesting. It's not a coordinated central movement, but it's all these different local groups are all kind of seeing the same thing. We got to you know, if we, you, you, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. We want to call the tune in government. Well, we got to pay the piper. Now, I noticed in several of the places that you just referenced, uh, Oakland, Seattle, uh, Minnesota, they all tend to be pretty blue places. New Hampshire, not so much. Um, is this something that only Democrats favor because there's a perception that it will benefit Democrats? I'm not – absolutely not at all. I mean that's – one of the things I've found – 
because uh, I've, I've done a lot of media appearances, mostly on conservative talk radio. I've gotten a very enthusiastic response. Um, I don't know why historically it's sort of been Democratic politicians who've made a little more noise about this, about money. But the reality is this is a completely bipartisan problem. You know, both parties – I mean you mentioned the Clinton example – are up to their necks in this money. No politician of either party can lead on this. Uh, and the thing is that Americans, uh, most Americans, I think, on both sides of the aisle are, are fed up with politics as usual, are, you know, want to change, want politicians to listen to us and serve us and, and give us what we need. And so I see a lot of support. I'm getting a lot of traction among Republicans. And this is can be one of those rare issues where uh, they could be unifying. I mean, the the um, way this would work in practice, let's say I'm interested in the presidential election and I don't necessarily have a lot of money to make campaign contributions or things of that nature. But I'm very interested in the in the election. I would then have essentially a voucher that would be paid for by the federal government, presumably. And then I can use that voucher to make a campaign donation to Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Robert Kennedy, Nikki Haley, whoever I want. Yeah. Okay. And um, that is pretty much the model in in Seattle as well. There's been a lot of concern of late about something called dark money, not disclosing donors, having big donors, special interests donate directly to these super PACs who don't have to disclose their donors, or in some cases, even 501c4 nonprofits that act very political. Would this proposal do anything to deal with the problem with dark money? Um, Not directly and immediately, but the thing is that once... Voters see that politi- you know, candidates have a large pool of money controlled by us to fund their campaigns. Um, a candidate who benefits from dark money or tex- takes corporate money, any other kind of private money in large amounts, um, their opponent's going to say, well, I want to serve you. I fund my campaign with democracy dollars. My opponent would rather be a stooge for big pharma or – you know, for these, uh, for these, you know, these organizations who take donors, we don't even know who the donors are, and and one part of that that, and again, because none of this has to be reported, we don't know how big it is, is that for you know that foreign donors can absolutely contribute a lot of money to influence our our elections, and we have we don't even we they're not even required to disclose it. We don't even know how much that is. Uh, Let me raise uh, something with you that was written by Ethan Blevins, who uh, wrote an op-ed in The Hill when Senator Kirsten Gillibrand proposed something like this. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which I I think is sort of a conservative legal uh, activist organization. He says that the track record and the experiment in Seattle – has largely been a failure. He says that it's been um, expensive and it has made no difference in political outcomes. He says that uh, the city raised $6 million in property tax dollars for the program and they managed to blow $2.2 million in just administrative and implementation costs alone and only about $1 million of the $6 million raised 
actually went to vouchers and the city dumped more money into administrative costs than campaign funding. He said it's a stunning example of government waste, but he said that's not the worst part. He says that the data demonstrates that this didn't fulfill any of the voucher program's goals. The program was supposed to broaden political participation, but it didn't. According to him, only 4% of the vouchers issued were actually used, and the people that used it tended to be white, wealthy, and already politically engaged. And he said, if anything, the program only strengthened the participation of these already powerful groups. What do you say to those criticisms, any or all of them? Well, I think, you know, the administrative costs is an issue because they've, in Seattle, they've only been using paper vouchers. Um, Paper vouchers are necessary for people who don't have computers, but the more efficient way to distribute this money and I think get higher participation is uh, a website and online, you know, in addition to the paper. And the new systems that are popping up are combining the two. Uh, He has a valid point with the administration, but to say that it hasn't had an impact I don't know where he's getting his information. I'll just give you one uh, point, uh, case in point. You know, in 2018, Jeff Bezos and some of his cronies decided they wanted to buy a city council that was more to their liking. There were mm. seven council races. They put an unprecedented $1.5 million into these city council races, uh, and it totally backfired. Everyone in the city, their awareness was raised by these democracy dollars uh, system and – um, candidates that took democracy dollars, I think six out of seven won. Almost all, all but one of Bezos's candidates went down to hmm. defeat. So, um, yeah, and the participation actually has broadened beyond, I don't know, you know, what do they say about statistics? You know, figures lie right. because liars figure, you know. <laughs> uh, people are just tuning in. We're talking with Dan McMillan. He leads the uh, say, he leads a group called Save Democracy in America, which is a nonpartisan campaign to get big money out of politics. By the way, if people are interested in learning more, uh, they can go to savedemocracyinamerica.org. Thank you very much. That's right. Frank. Right. Yeah. Savedemocracyinamerica.org. All right. Um, I... Asked uh, people that are much smarter than I am uh, across the political spectrum, left wing, right wing, center, to come up with some problems for this this uh, proposal. Thank you. Right? Good. And but I mean, you only found like three people, Frank, well, <laughs> smarter than you. Come on, <laughs> please. Uh, I don't you, know anyone smarter than you. Frank. Please, you throw a dart, you find somebody smarter <laughs> than me. Um, yeah. But and I got I got dozens. Okay, of good. questions. Let's so bring it on. I'm only going to bring up three with you, but okay. what I'd like to do, if you're willing, next week you got to come back, and I'd love to do a full hour in a podcast exclusive with awesome. you, and that we can get into the nitty gritty of this because um, I think they raised some good points. But okay. I really want, I really want to embrace this. But uh, just to give folks a right. uh, an idea of where we are status wise at this point. Where are we legislatively with this actually happening? Has anybody in Congress proposed it, or is that still a ways away? There, there was a, a good workable bill uh, that was drafted by Rokana's staff in 2018, introduced um, a Democracy Dollars Act, and it's it's not a bad basis for discussion for going forward. That said, you know, nothing's really going to happen in Washington. Um, nothing's going to come from Washington. They're all too... Everyone, everyone in politics, no matter how well-intentioned, they are so trapped in dependence on their donors, and especially with the cost has skyrocketed, they can't lead in the money issue. So it's got to come from us, and leadership has to come from people outside the system, 
people like me and, and hundreds, you know, thousands all around the country working at the state or local level. Uh, so I don't even try to talk to politicians or get them on my side. They're useless. You're going right to the people and trying to win the people. We're going to the first. people. And one of the things that's so great about this is the way that it directly empowers us because one of the worst things that's happened in our country, Frank, is you know, here we are, the, 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 the nation that invented government by the people, and yet we're like shut out of the action. You know, it's the conversation is between politicians right. and donors. It's, it's very frustrating. And, and, and yet what Democracy Dollars does is, well, okay, money's power in American politics. Here is your chunk of power. Right. Right. To use. Okay. All right. So, this right. is something that a uh, former um, politician, former Democratic politician raised. This is what he said. We gave people bucks they didn't ask for during COVID, and people used them to pump up GameStop. Making politics like a casino with free trips, free chips, right. doesn't make it more serious. Also, isn't democracy more small D democratic than ever before. Look at people like AOC and Bernie Sanders. Um, wh- what do you say to that? Wow, that is so messed up on so many levels. I don't <laughs> want to begin. <laughs> this because a former Democratic politician. I think, yeah. he's, I think he's still trying to justify his misdeeds. Uh, well, first of all, Sanders and you know AOC, these are the exceptions who prove the rule. Um, and they can't, there's only, I mean, there is only so much um, I mean, they have done well with small dollar donations from private individuals, but you know, most people cannot don't have enough money lying around to give cash to politicians. So, by itself, in the current system, um, you don't have enough small dollar money for um, for those people to get. I mean, to say that the system has small d democratic become has become more small d democratic is just preposterous. You know. Um, but let me um, – what was it about the people spending the money wisely? Right. Well, um, here you're giving people money specifically to spend on politics, and you're giving them a reason to inform themselves. And you're also putting politicians in a position where they need to go to the donors and ask the donors not just for their – ask the voters not just for their vote, but – for something they need a lot more importantly than their vote, namely the cash, without which they can't. All right, I'm going to save the rest of these for our conversation next week. If people want to hear the sequel to this, they can um, subscribe to my podcast, Frank Morano Interviews and More, and there's going to be a podcast exclusive. You're not going to be able to hear it on the radio, Frank Morano Interviews and More. Subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else. You can also go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And if you have questions, you can email me, and uh, I will try to get to them in the course of that podcast. My email is frank at redappleaudionetworks.com uh, and you can also uh, go and check out uh, Dan McMillan's website, savedemocracyinamerica.org. Dan, it's always a treat to see you. Thank nice you. Nice to see you, Frank. All right. 800-848-9222. Any subject is fair game. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Work, 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 Sinora. Work your body liner. Work, work, 
Works in aura, work it all the time. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. Jump when in the line by uh, the great Harry Belafonte. Um, you know, who could forget that great scene in uh, Beetlejuice with Winona Ryder doing her thing uh, to this song? Probably the second greatest scene in that film involving a Harry Belafonte song. And um, the first, the other song in that picture is banana, the Banana Boat song, but it's what everybody calls Deo, right? Do you know who wrote this song? I'm going to blow your mind when I tell you who wrote this song. Okay? You will um, never get this. I mean, this is a piece of trivia that you can impress all your friends with. This song was written by someone that is much better known for doing things other than songwriting being an actor, namely. He's actually one of the oldest working actors in Hollywood. This song was written by Academy Award winner, SAG Award winner, Golden Globe Award winner, Alan Arkin. Did you, are you, are you mind blown? Now that was worth the white price of admission in listening to this show today, okay? Alan Arkin of... You know, Edward Scissorhands, Little Miss Sunshine, Argo, you name it. He wrote this song. I think he had a co-writer as well, but I think that's still pretty wild. All right, 800-848-9222. A harrowing day in the Murano household yesterday because my son Carmine had to get blood drawn for the first time. As part of a checkup, they have to... Get you check for lead and I think one other thing. So he had to go to the lab and get blood removed. And I felt so bad for him. He went with his mom, but I, I so that I could sleep. And she she said how he was unhappy. He was very brave. He recovered quickly, but he cried. And she's holding him while he cried. Real tears. Whenever he cries, real tears. I get very upset. And was she's holding him in her arm and a whole puddle of tears ends up in her arm. But thankfully it was over in a second and, uh, and he recovered quickly and, you know, I'm sure everything's fine, but uh, that was a big part of the drama for him today. And then around 1230, one o'clock in the afternoon, I hear, I am woken up from a sound sleep this. Now, for a second, I thought I was dreaming. And then I look in my, I look in my backyard where there was construction. I see nothing. Nothing. I'm thinking, what is this? It's a nightmare. I can't sleep. And then I hear, simultaneous to this, people shouting at one another. And they're cursing at one another and uh, just yelling at one another. Turns out my neighbor next to me, it's not enough that I have construction behind me. My neighbor next to me is having trees removed. Oh, didn't get much sleep after that, I'll tell you. Your influence counts. Be sure to use it. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. About a year ago, after one of the many mass shootings which we seem to have in this country, I announced that for a bunch of reasons, I was no longer going to be uh, covering, commenting on, mentioning any of these mass shootings. I mean, tragic, horrible, terrible. And one of the reasons that I cited was because... I didn't want to lead to more mass shootings, basically sort of a a copycat effect. And and it turns out that there is a whole theory and a whole school of psychology which basically agrees with that thought that I um, that if you talk about something in the media, if it's covered widely in places like the news, then you get more of it. If you start doing a whole bunch of news stories about mass shootings, you get more mass shootings. You start doing more stories about suicides, you get more suicides. For instance, NJ Transit in New Jersey, they don't mention when someone commits suicide because they're of the belief that that leads to more people committing suicide on NJ Transit platforms. And there is some data to show, or some at least studies, to show that that's the case. And so I came across this article uh, two weeks ago, and I've had it on my maybe list for a while, and I just linked to it on my Facebook page. You could read it, facebook.com slash Fan. It's from uh, a news outlet called Pointer, P-O-Y-N-T-E-R. It's written by P-O-Y-N-T-E-R. It's written by Kelly McBride. But like, like I said, you could just read it on my Facebook page if you want, facebook.com slash Fan. And she asks such an interesting question. And it's one that I was embarrassed that I had never thought of myself. The question was, local newsrooms um, want to stop sensationalizing crime, but it's hard. And essentially, she asked the question, should we cover crime at all? And this was a person that was a crime reporter, a very veteran journalist, And she says how almost all of local news has been governed by this if it bleeds, it leads mentality. So she asks, why cover crime at all? And she interviewed, she spoke to a lot of journalists about it because it's almost unthinkable. There's almost this marriage of the sensational crime story and the Daily News report that's gone on so long. It's hard to imagine that it's different. But then she presses and most journalists tell her, that it has something to do with public safety, meaning that journalists report on crime so that the public can be safe. 
But that argument falls apart quickly when she presses for specific connections between news reports on specific crimes and overall public safety. Of course, there are exceptions, like when a serial predator is on the loose, but most stories about instances of crime do nothing to promote public safety. So she says the first step is to articulate a journalistic purpose that goes beyond it's just interesting. And when newsrooms struggle with that step of answering the question, why cover crime at all? It's either because they have journalists on staff who built their careers on traditional crime coverage or because the organization is addicted to the clicks, the modest traffic spikes that come with crime stories and the big peaks that come with the most sensational stories. And it's an interesting article. And she gets into which crimes to cover, getting data, understanding trends, informing the public. But I've had this on my maybe list for two weeks. Then. There's, you know, I have this Facebook group. Uh, you can join it, facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. And it's meant to be a forum for people to comment on the show. But unfortunately, what it so often becomes is people bullying and picking on one another if folks have the temerity to disagree with them. So, and, and there's just a bunch of mean people in the world of social media. And so one guy comments on my appearance on a radio show yesterday, and then another guy says, you know, you couldn't just leave well enough alone, right? But he's got to antagonize. So this one guy says, do you folks just spend the day and night listening to the radio? Go out and enjoy the day. And I felt so bad when I read the response to this guy. A woman, presumably, writes... I am not going to go out and get robbed and beaten, and I prefer, I prefer to stay home. Now, I don't know where this woman lives. Maybe she lives in a place, a city, a neighborhood where there's a lot of crime. But I thought that's so sad that wherever she lives, especially if she lives in a city like New York, her chances of getting robbed and beaten are pretty rare, pretty rare. In New York, for instance, where they there's a ton of crime coverage, all you got to do is pick up the New York Post, and you learn you see all the daily crime blotter. There are fewer murders so far, and hopefully the pace continues. There are fewer murders this year than there were last year. Uh, Matt Blaze, how many murders do you think there were in New York City last year? Twelve hundred. You think there were twelve hundred murders? Yeah, something like that. Uh, Kenneth, how many do you think? Oh, 750. Okay. Um, Both of you are way off. There were 438 murders in New York City last year. Now, would you ever guess that based on the amount of coverage that is given to crime in the media? Well, I said 1,200, so no. (laughs) Yeah. Now, um, what was a safe year in New York City? 2001. 2001. In 2001. Actually, no, that's a bad year to pick. Go, well, no, we won't count September 11th, but go ahead. Pick another one if you want. Let's say 2000. 2000. In 2000, there were 673 murders. That was not quite double, but significantly more murders. And this tracks with robberies and assaults as well in 2000 than in 2022. 2021 had more. So 2021 had 488. But there was a big crime reduction from 21 to 22, 
And now there's been a crime reduction from 22 to 23. Um, In 2019, for instance, there were 319 murders. 319. Now, there's a variety of reasons why um, there are causes for concern. Bail reform is one in places uh, around the country, including New Jersey and New York. We've chronicled this with experts. Um, But the point is, New York, New Jersey, and I don't know where this woman lives who made that comment, these are not dangerous places. But people have the perception that it's dangerous. And look, I'm not suggesting you walk around holding, you know, sleeping while holding your iPhone in one hand and a a wallet full of cash um, in your other hand and make yourself a target. I get that you got to be street smart in a lot of these cities, especially the more dangerous cities like Chicago and Baltimore and St. Louis. But by and large, I don't think the media is truly reflecting the crime problem. Even very smart people uh, like my friend, former New York Governor David Patterson, he told uh, the Cat- John Katzmatidis on his nationally syndicated radio show, The Cats Roundtable, he feels quite unsafe when he walks around New York. This is Governor Patterson, October 2022. For the first time in my life, even in the late 80s and 90s, when the crime rate was killing 2,000 people uh, a year, I never felt as unsafe as I do now just walking around. And he's being sincere. I know Governor Patterson, and we, we talked about this privately. That's what he tells me privately. He's being sincere. And um, I do wonder if all of the media coverage to crime, 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 shooting, 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 subway robbery, subway robbery, subway robbery, not just in New York but around the country, is making people more afraid than they need to be. When I saw that Facebook comment, I thought that was certainly the case. And then I read this article, and I said, all right, we've got to talk about this today. Do you know who Andrew Lester is? Andrew Lester is an 84-year-old homeowner in Kansas City, Missouri, who shot a black teenager named Ralph Yarl, who rang the doorbell of the wrong house while trying to pick up his younger siblings. And it turns out his grandson, and and this is a totally innocent young man, Ralph Ralph Yarl, he's uh, just rang the bell at the wrong house. Police detained Lester, after the shooting, but they released him a few hours later. And residents of the neighborhood where Yarl is from protested on the street where he was shot. And there were more than a thousand people demanding that Lester be arrested and formally charged. Police arrested Lester later on, and they charged him with first-degree assault and armed criminal action. So Lester's grandson came out and said that He thinks the reason that he, Clint Ludwig, says that the reason that his grandfather did this was because he's seeing media coverage nonstop of how bad the crime is, and he's scared. Here's what Clint Ludwig told uh, CNN about the Ralph Yall shooting. Uh, I was disgusted. I thought it was terrible. Uh, Myself and my family stand with Ralph Yarl and seeking justice. It's a, this is a horrible tragedy. It never should have happened. Well, that actually wasn't the, um, the audio that I thought it was going to be. But 
um, essentially, he says that his grandfather was heavily, was radicalized, he uses the term, by the media. And uh, he said that he would consume conservative media, he said, and in the 24-hour news cycle of fear and paranoia perpetuated by some of the other news stations. And I said, all right, we've got to talk about this because now I'm really concerned. We're having innocent 18-year-olds shot because folks are being radicalized by the media. Now, one thing I want to make clear is the the fact that just because his grandson says this, that doesn't make it so. The grandson could be mistaken about what his grandfather was watching and listening to on a daily basis. And his analysis could be wrong, even if his grandfather was watching those channels. So my question for you is, do the local news outlets, newspapers, television, that cover crime nonstop, because you know the old local news adage, if it bleeds, it leads, does it lead to more crime? More important, as in the case of this woman who commented on Facebook that she's afraid to go outside, and as in the case of this Ralph uh, Jarl shooting, Does it lead to people being irrationally afraid? Because I get the sense when I walk around, New York's one city, and what I'm saying applies not to Chicago, not to Baltimore, not to St. Louis, and I recognize there are problems in many different cities. But when I walk around New York, again, there are certain neighborhoods that are very bad. But it turns out when it comes to shoplifting, for instance, which is another one of those bellwether crimes, there's 327 people that are committing 80% of the shoplifting. Now, it doesn't help that they get set right out on the street every day. But when I walk around New York, I feel very safe. Maybe I'd feel differently in Memphis. Maybe I'd feel differently in Detroit or Cleveland or Milwaukee. but Statistically, New York is one of the safest large cities in America, and yet people are afraid to go outside. I think that's a tragedy. But tragedy is a word that should be reserved for what happened to Ralph Yarl. So my question for you is what role does the media play in making people afraid? I've said this for years when it came to 800-848-9222, I've said this for years when it came to children being abducted. For years, so many parents were terrified. Oh, no, my child's going to be abducted by a stranger and molested and harmed and and dismembered and everything. When it turns out, there are fewer children being abducted by strangers now than ever. And your chances of having a child actually abducted, if you walks around alone is almost non-existent, particularly by a stranger. Almost every child abduction takes place by someone that child knows, usually a family member, unfortunately, or or a neighbor. It's not a stranger usually. But so many parents are afraid of this because of the media coverage. And I'm curious what your view is on how the media should cover crime. Should they continue this, if it bleeds, it leads philosophy? I'm starting to think that the answer to that is maybe not. I do think it's important to uh, draw a distinction, uh, to draw 
a straight line, basically, by things like um, certain bail reform laws and what that means in terms of recidivism. But I am of the view that local news outlets might be spending too much time covering crime. And I don't think they're doing a public service uh, because I don't see crime going down in those places. So I want you to read that article that I posted on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. But I want you to tell me about the role of the media in this whole thing. You're also welcome to comment. No more guests uh, for the rest of the hour. So you're welcome to comment on anything else that we've covered today. 800-848-9222. Uh, Charlie in Hell's Kitchen has been waiting a while. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Frank. About the previous topics you were talking about with your guests and even the comments you are making before your guests came on, I go against conventionalism. I'm like the salmon swimming upstream. I want to see just Biden and Trump. I want to see it. I don't want to see any third-party candidates. I want to see Biden versus Trump. That's it, the rematch. And I want to see if the American people are stupid enough to reelect Biden. I mean, given the inflation, given the horrible economic situation, given the crisis at our southern border, we don't even have a southern border anymore. I get get all that, Charlie. I get all that. But uh, understand, the data shows that uh, a lot of Democrats are, are disappointed with Biden and would prefer another candidate. And while it's not as prevalent among Republicans with Trump, there's a substantial number of Republicans that want someone other than Trump. And there's a substantial amount of independents that would prefer someone other than Biden and Trump. So the point is, and the broader point that I was trying to make is that the problem is not Trump or Biden necessarily. The problem is the system that creates a Trump or a Biden uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Antonio is in Brooklyn. Hello, Antonio. Hey, hi. Good morning. Morning. I just got in from work. You know, we had a lovely thing at the Guggenheim Museum. Listen, you're the best. Let me just say this right quick. I'm Panamanian. I'm from Panama. You know, that little thing that connects both Americas. Absolutely, um, yeah. We've got the canal there. there. There you go. No, we have the canal. Well, there. I know. Well, in part because of <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. No, no, no. Listen, listen. Let, let, I know. I know your time is valuable. So let me just go ahead. Um, listen, I was. I, I I heard what your your callers just said, and I agreed. It's just one of those things where, you see, I have issues with the fact that they never show what happened before the videos were, you know, began taping the videos. What what, what videos? It's just, well, the one that makes um, everyone get so riled up like with the Black Lives Matter oh, people I, and everything. But right, let me I not see. go off on a tangent. Mm-hmm. Let me not go go off on a tangent. Um, I just love the way you come back at the callers and have them be specific. And it's a wonderful thing. Well, I appreciate you that, see. Antonio. Thank you very much. Uh, it's very, very kind of you. And uh, just a reminder can, uh, to everybody that's calling, um, please, once you go on hold, Turn your radio off so that we can 
we don't hear the show pumped back in once you're on hold. I know it's tempting to want to hear yourself on the radio, but I appreciate that from Antonio. 800-848-9222. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. Hi, how are you? I wanted to talk on a lighter subject. Be my guest. Harry Belafonte, he was a great man. He sat in back in the Baruch College at my commencement exercise. And my sister kept on telling my, he was a big fan of my mother's. And my, my sister said, don't stare at him. Don't don't keep on looking back at him. And one thing great about he, uh, Abraham Brilloff, who was the chair of the accounting department at Baruch, was the honorary professor who spoke. And Harry Belafonte was a friend of his, and he was also a great man who was in favor of legal immigration. He said it helps the economy of the city. So he, uh, I like, I especially like him because you can judge a pe- uh, person by the company he keeps. And Abraham Brilloff was a great man. Well, I, you know, I don't know anything about Abraham. Um, uh, uh, what was his name? Belloff, you said? Yeah, but I'm a big fan of Harry Belafonte's work. I'll say that. Thank you for that. Um, And Harry Belafonte, I actually think, was somewhat underrated as an actor. He did some very fine films, including a film that not a lot of people know about with uh, John Travolta called White Man's Burden. Well, we'll talk a little bit about Belafonte in... um, in a minute. 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. Hello, Alex. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I think the problem is not necessarily uh, the media spending too much time on crime. The problem is that people lack knowledge of statistics, so they can't interpret uh, the situation appropriately. You saw something similar during the coronavirus pandemic, where the media would would, uh, talk about some cases of uh, severe illness involving the coronavirus, and suddenly people would think that they're under threat, but it turned out if you understood the statistics that the coronavirus was basically uh, had the same fatality rate as a, as a very bad flu season. You know, that's a great point, Alex, because I made some similar points to friends of mine who would listen to everything people like Andrew Cuomo and, and, and others, uh, the governor of California uh, said, Gavin Newsom and, and others. And I would say, how much of the economy is worth shutting down for a disease that kills less than one half of one percent of all the people that get it? I mean, if you're talking about a disease that has a 20, 30 percent mortality rate, OK, let's start talking about shutting down things. But are we going to really paralyze the country for something that ninety nine point nine percent of the people that get it? survive with no problem. And and that's exactly, that's a good portion. So whether it's crime or whether it's COVID or something else, Alex, what do you think that we can do as either individuals or as media personalities or as anybody to better illustrate the statistics and explain it in a way so that people aren't frightened to death? I think the first thing is requires statistics for all school children, that is, to study statistics as a mandatory math class. And for adults who didn't have it in their background, they can take it uh, in community college or they can get a book and read about it. Once you have that knowledge, you're no longer going to be afraid. You know, you're not going to be overwhelmed by paranoia because you understand what the limitations of the data are. Well, Well said, Alex. That's a great thought and a great call, and it's one that I wouldn't have thought of. Had you not called in, thank you. 800-848-9222. Chris is in New Jersey. Hello, Chris. Frank, the guy before me stole my thunder. But, yeah, ah, no, because I, 
I worked for UPS, and listen, uh, apparently we were COVID-free for uh, working through the pandemic. All of us worked 24-7. Uh, we had, uh, you know, four or 500 people working in our facility any given time. And look, people are still wearing masks. And I sadly believe the media, that's where people just sadly get their information from. They don't do enough, like the gentleman before said, they don't research this thing. You have to do your research to on yourself. It's your, it's upon it, you. You got to take responsibility for yourself at one point here, and you got to do your own research to find out the facts. And sadly, this is what happens. You know, they they rely on the media, and sadly, they get all spooked up, and that's it. It's just they get all frightened, and that's we're still frightened. People are people probably haven't come out of their house still from COVID. It's terrible. You know. Um... It's so interesting, everything that you just said, Chris. So understanding that the media these days is so driven by clicks. Now, I'll tell you, you know, when they pay very close attention at the radio network that I'm on to every night or every morning, every segment, whether the streaming numbers go up or whether they go down. And if there's a guest or a subject or a story that leads those streaming numbers to get up, they want me to do more of that. Um, if the same thing with every newspaper in the country, the same thing with every TV station in the country, the stories that get clicks are the stories that are, whether we're talking crime, whether we're talking COVID, whether we're talking um, other things that have to do with fear. Fright and hysteria. People click. They share them on social media. They email them to their friends. And understanding that all of us have to have a job, right? All these media outlets need to be able to pay their people. And all the people that work there need to be able to get uh, produce enough to get the clicks necessary to keep their job. That being said, how do you think we can change that media model so that the stories that are frightening everyone to death aren't necessarily the ones being covered most often. Frank, honestly, I wish I knew. It's, I mean, sadly, it's become a country of sheep, and it's follow the leader, and it's it's become sad. It's, it's like they've come into, you know, Trump's or it's Biden's or, you know, it's just become the R and a D's, and it's just sad, and it's there's no talking points in the middle. Nobody wants to have a discussion anymore. Nobody can talk about it. I, I can't even talk to a fellow Democrat right now because they lash out at me. Yeah. Just on simple things. It's terrible. Well, well said, Chris. Thank you. And to your point, you know, uh, sometimes people don't like that I praise Richard Bay. But Richard Bay used to end every show by saying, don't let the media matrix melt with your mind. And he was exactly right. And it's one of the reasons, quite frankly, that I loved Tucker Carlson's show. That I loved Michael Smirconish, still love, present tense, Michael Smirconish's show. I would love to see him be the permanent replacement for Don Lemon on CNN. Give me something to watch now that Tucker's not on. Although now I'm enjoying being able to watch uh, Mets baseball. But um, those guys, Smirconish and Tucker in particular, they don't march with the um, drumbeat of the rest of the world. They go their own way, and I love that. And unfortunately, those are the exceptions. 800-848-9222. Ed the Milkman is in New Jersey. Hello, Ed. How you doing, Frank? Good. Um, One time, the Patterson police considered me their professional victim for all the times I got mugged, armed robbery, held up, um, even was beat up pretty good one time. They 
threw me in the dumpster. The police had to fish me out of the dumpster. Wow. Jeez. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it was back in the 70s. You know, it was just, you know, that's what they did. They robbed people that were on the street. Um, anyhow, like I have neighbors and friends that say, oh, you go in those areas? Yeah, why? Oh, do you lock your doors? No. You know, and it's just people have this phobia about cities. It's unbelievable. They're just, oh, I saw in the newspaper somebody got robbed. Yeah, there were 5,000 people there right. that day, one person. Right. I mean, uh, thank you, Ed. I appreciate that. I want to get to one or two more people. Then we're going to do the uh, the thousand dollar uh, the thousand dollar minute. Um, Owen is in Wisconsin. Hello, Owen. Yeah, hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, I'm in Wisconsin now. Have been for the last thirty years, but I grew up in New York City, in Astoria, in Queens specifically. I do get back to the city from time to time, and I guess I draw the analogy with the old lobster in the pot uh, syndrome, where you turn up the heat little by little, and the lobster doesn't know it's being cooked. When I go back to the city now, and I see, if only visually, how the city has changed, um, it frightens me. As far as the crime goes, the crimes, you, I think, will admit are more overt, and they're more creative. Perhaps for the incidents of the mentally ill, who are now apparently roaming the streets freely. <clears throat> and that's the part that scares me. When I was a kid, there was a police precinct, 114th precinct on 30th Avenue. Everybody lived peaceably. There was no fear, never a story of, hey, did you hear about the guy who got hit over the head with a bottle on 30th and 14th Street? No, it never happened. But now, again, the lobster in the pot, people have grown accustomed to it, and they have to try to convince themselves that, you know, it's the media. You know, everything is really not as bad as it looks. Mm. It is, in a way, as bad as it looks. And one other thing I like to say about the media the word manifesto, do you know whether that is the work of the media or of these people that are killing people? I, I don't. I don't. That's a great because question. Though. The question, the reason I raise it, and you probably know where I'm going with this, the word manifesto, I think, is sort of an imprimatur, sort of a, a stamp of approval on what these people are doing. And when the nuts out there, pardon the expression, hear the latest killing, and oh, he's got a manifesto. Hey, that's cool, man. Isn't that so? Manifesto, I learned that in high school. That's when governments declare things. When a manifesto is so played up as it is, first of all, the word, I think, should be banned from the vocabulary as far as news media goes, and just say he left a note. Because the other fruitcake is out there planning one right now, and he's writing up his manifesto. He might even, if he can spell the word, put it at the head of his statement, and the whole thing just goes round and round and round. Uh, that's a fair fair point, Owen. Thank you. Hey, everybody that's holding, uh, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you after the $1,000 minute. Meantime, we're going to try and find one of you that we can give $1,000 to. If you want to be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, we'll give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that... We will give you $1,000. So go ahead and call right now. Seventh caller to 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
No, this is not Diamond Dallas Page's uh, entrance music. Uh, this is Smells Like Teen Spirit, right? Smells Like Nirvana by Weird Al. Oh, is that what this is? Oh, there you go. I don't know that I was familiar with this one. Pretty good. I like. Um, I am a Weird Al fan, uh, and I still did not see that Weird Al movie yet, which uh, I am looking forward to seeing. And it was Weird Al Yankovic's birthday. Uh, I don't know when was it. It was on uh, October, but I don't remember why I wanted to play this the other day. But I had a reason. But um, there we have it. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're talking about. Meantime, we're going to try and see if we can't give away a little bit of money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, let us welcome Oscar in Baltimore. Hello, Oscar. Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Oscar. Oscar, have you heard this segment of the show before? Yes, I have. All right, good. So you know what to do, right? Yep. All right, so if you're ready, we are... And going... I, must, I must tell you that, uh, like Weird Al Yankovic's Eat It versus, you know, that As do does. I. Yeah, yeah do I love I. that one, too. <laughs> yeah, he, a lot of his versions of songs, the parodies, I think are better than the actual song. Yes, yes, he's a great, he's a very good keyboard player and, and instrument player. Absolutely, no, he's, mm-hmm. uh, his specialty is the uh, the squeeze box there. Accordion. The accordion. Oh, yes, accordion. Yeah, yep. squeeze box. yeah. All right, um, if you're ready to go, we'll get started, okay? Yes, sir. And use the money to buy some Weird Al Yankovic <laughs> records. All right, name a section in the newspaper. Uh, sports. What is the name of the men's professional basketball league in the United States? NBA. Klingons were the villain in what science fiction TV show? Star Trek. What is the name of the company that produces iPhones and iPads? Apple. What is the name of the mountain range that runs through South America? The Andes. What is the name of the currency used in Japan? Yen. Who holds the record for the most Olympic gold medals? Michael Phelps. What is the name of the superhero team in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that includes Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor? So we're out of time, Oscar. You were doing great. I thought we were giving you a thousand dollars. I'm not a Marvel person. The name of the group would have been all over that one. The name of the group is the Avengers. Avengers. The Avengers. You did very well, though. You got up to question eight. That is better than anybody's done in a while. I'm going to put you on hold, and Kenneth's going to give you something as a as a thank you. Okay. Okay. Great. Thank you, Oscar. All right. By the way, if you want any any of the merchandise in the online store, please be sure to do two things. One, go to store.othersideofmidnightshow.com, and if you buy anything on there, use the promo code FRANK15. And I'm laughing because I have this great Other Side of Midnight pillow in our house, 
And uh, my neighbor, John Charles, who lives across the street, not only bought one for his mother, but he got one for one of the outdoor Adirondack chairs. And he just leaves it out there all day. And I said to my wife, when I saw this pillow unattended on a chair with him not even home yesterday, I said, well, what if it rains? I don't want something happening to that pillow. I said to her, should I bring that pillow in? She said, no, it's not your pillow. I said, yes, it is. It's got my name on it. She said, yeah, but he purchased it. All right. You're the odd duck. So if you do purchase anything, whether it's the pillow or anything else, at store.othersideofmidnightshow.com, use the promo code FRANK15, and you could save uh, 15% off on whatever it is that you purchase on there. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, About Harry Belafonte, he did a very – everyone knows his stuff, but – most people don't know he did a very obscure science fiction movie. Are you aware of that one? Mm, I don't think so. What's the name of it? The, the World, the Flesh, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. No, I never saw it. Yeah, it's a post-nuclear uh, apocalypse. Oh, I thing. love it. it. Like, yeah, with Jason Robards. Is, is that the guy who was married Robards. to Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, uh, Jason Robards was married to uh, Lauren Bacall. Who, who was married to Audrey Hepburn? Um, I, I'm going to have to look that one up. Up, um, but yeah, I, I, I might have the wrong guy. Oh, Mel Ferrer. Yeah, that's it. Mel okay. Ferrer was in it. Mel Ferrer and and uh, uh, Harry Belafonte, and it was a great movie. It was in black and white, early sixties, and it was a phenomenal movie. Most people don't know. So if you, if you want to, you know, I know you're into this stuff. Oh, I am, uh, and I love Belafonte as an actor. Like I said, I love that gravelly voice. We yeah. really had to turn up the volumes to understand what he was saying, especially once he got into his 90s. Yet nobody had any idea what he was saying. People just assumed <laughs> it was great. Thank you, Rick. I'll check that out. I'll put it on my list. Yeah, I love Belafonte's work uh, as both an actor and a singer. You know, I, I don't really consider myself into Calypso music, but all of Belafonte's Calypso songs, I'm into. I also really appreciated his work uh, on behalf of civil rights opposing things like uh, segregation at a time when it was very tough to do so. He was a close confidant of Martin Luther King Jr. and helped fund a lot of his uh, work, his humanitarian work, and raised a lot of money, donated a lot of money. A longtime critic of U.S. foreign policy, and he made a lot of controversial statements. Again, many statements that I disagreed with. He, um, you know, you know, when it came to Cuba, when it came to Venezuela, a lot of stuff. I I didn't appreciate what he said about uh, Colin Powell and um, Con- and Condoleezza Rice making the reference almost to them being house slaves, and that wasn't the word that you know that he used. I, I thought that was really beneath him and really not helpful to civic discourse in this country. And look, there's nobody more critical of the Bush administration and Condoleezza Rice than me. But uh, look, uh, everybody that has a career of 60 or 70 years worth of activism, uh, you're going to find some things they've said that I don't agree with. But Belafonte was out there at the Civil Rights March in Washington, D.C. in 1963 with Martin Luther King, with Sidney Poitier, with Charlton Heston. No more vocal advocate against segregation in this country and apartheid abroad. 
And um, even whether you hated his activism or you loved it, I don't think you can doubt what an incredible singer this man was. I mean, the guy was just phenomenal. However, as I said earlier, when it comes to Belafonte, there's one story that I can't stop thinking about. And I'm sorry if you've heard this. If you've heard it, come back in two minutes. But it's Larry King telling the story of one of his most memorable moments on the radio. All these tales, any of the stories, were not funny when they were happening. I was scared to death going to the principal's office. Having firemen come running in you and you're asleep on the air. Right. Scared to death. The night I went to the lady's house, I mean, I mean, I was petrified. I'd been in radio two weeks. I was 23 years old. And I did everything, because I did sports, I did news, I did this junk, everything. And one day they knew I was a glutton, you know, because Larry will do it. So the station manager calls you and says, the all-night guy is sick. Would you like to fill in tonight? Sure, no problem. Now I'm in the station all alone, it was a small station. i never forget this. I'm playing these records, and the phone rings up to get up, say, WHR, and this lady's voice, and I could still hear her voice. She goes, I want you. (laughs) What'd you say? I said, I want you. And I said to myself, there's a couple of extra pluses to being in this bag. So I said the immediate thing, I swear to God, I get off at six. And she says, that I won't do. I got to go to work. You got to come now. I said, but I'm on the air. She says, I'm only 12 blocks from the station. Here's my address. If you can make it, please, I really want you. Hangs up. I got her address. I'm the only one on the station. So here's what the audience heard. Uh, Folks, I'm only sitting in tonight. So I got a real treat for you. You're going to hear the entire Harry Belafonte at Carnegie Hall album uninterrupted. I have 33 minutes. (laughs) Which is all the time I need. (laughs) To this day, that's still true. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines. I put the record on. I get the car. I swear to God. I rush to her house. 11 bucks away. I pull into the house. The light is on. The Volkswagen was in the driveway. She said the door would be open. The door was open. She's sitting there. She wore a white necklace. I never saw her face clear. The little lamp was on. The radio's on. Belafonte's singing. She opens up her arms. I run into her arms. I put my arms. My cheek goes against her cheek. And on the radio, Belafonte singing Jamaica Farewell. Down the way where the nights. Down the way where the nights, where the nights, where the nights, where the nights. I push her back. I jump in the car. I drive to the station. And this is Jewish masochism. I keep the radio on. Where the nights, 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 where the nights. And I was petrified. You know, I come back, all the phones are ringing. <laughs> I'm apologizing to people. And the last call, I never forgot it. The old Jewish guy. You know. WHR, and I hear this guy go, Where the nights, where the nights. I'm going crazy, I'm going crazy. I said, Sir, I apologize. Why didn't you change the station? He says, I'm an invalid. <laughs> and they stepped the station for me on top of the bureau. I can't reach. <laughs> the other side of midnight. 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 Mid
It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in uh, just, a, just about two minutes. Uh, those of you that were on hold prior, I will try and get to you and give you more than 15 seconds. But if you want to start queuing up for 15 seconds of fame, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. You know, one of the things I got great feedback to the other day is when I brought you some stories that from the Blind Spot Report. And if you want to see this for yourself, you can go to ground.news.blindspot. And it's stories from one side of the political spectrum or the other that had little to that had little penetration on conservative news outlets or liberal news outlets. So I think let me just run through a couple of stories that I've collected in the last few days that the other side is missing. Here is what the right is not missing. I mean, excuse me, is missing. New data shows a 10 percent drop in OBGYN residency applications since 2022 in states that have put in place abortion bans. Here's something the left missed. Afghanistan has become a terrorism staging ground again, according to leaks. Under two years post-U.S. withdrawal, Afghanistan is now a key coordination hub for ISIS with the group planning attacks across Europe and Asia and plotting against the U.S., as per a classified Pentagon report indicating heightened security concerns. That's something the left missed. The right, for whatever reason, I don't think there's much of a political angle to this, but for whatever reason, this is one of the stories the right missed. In in his first six months as king, Charles has reshuffled royal residences aimed for a slimmer monarchy, and replaced his mother, Queen Elizabeth's matronly decorum, and opened royal archives to research on the crown's slavery ties, presenting a fresh type of sovereign. Here's what the left missed. The White House said Biden would veto a GOP-led resolution overturning his administration's waiver of solar tariffs for four Southeast Southeast Asian nations. Here's what the right missed. The ACLU sued to block restrictions in Missouri on people seeking gender-affirming care. Here's what the left missed. DeSantis took a shot at Trump for Fauci's role 
during the COVID response. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took a shot at former President Trump over Anthony Fauci's role during the pandemic as speculation grows about DeSantis announcing a presidential run. And then here's what the right missed. So that was one of the ones the left missed, the DeSantis criticism of uh, Fauci story. You know why they missed it? Because the left-wing outlets don't want to cover stories that make Trump look like a moderate. But as Rich Lowry pointed out in his column over the weekend, and Rich Lowry is not a Trump fan, if you look at Trump policy-wise, not the things he says, but policy-wise, Trump's a pretty moderate guy in terms of his positions. For the right, this is a story I mentioned. Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon have both hired the same lawyer after Carlson and Lemon were ousted from their respective networks in rapid-fire succession both stars were quick to call one of the industry's most powerful attorneys, Brian Friedman. Remind me uh, to find his number in case I ever get fired. All right. Um, without further ado, we're going to give you a chance to talk for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222 is part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Mike! Good morning, Frank. Uh, going forward, uh, your mom might be referred to as the Jack Plompus of Staten Island. Lost astronaut pen. Did you check both ears? <laughs> uh, Bill. Yeah, uh, don't click on links that promote, like, gun crimes and pandemics and stuff like that. And the media will sort it out. They don't get ratings. They won't promote it. Thank you. Raji. Oh. I'm reminding the BBC and billionaire cats Matidis that anyone answering eight questions correctly is to receive $100. Neil. You had the cold you sent me, Frank. It wasn't bad. The trick is to drink it ice cold. Charlie. Uh, Harry Belafonte, I believe, was the last performer still alive who had appeared at President Kennedy's birthday party at Madison Square Garden. He was a last-minute substitute for Danny Kaye. I was there. I was 11 years old. Wow. Victor. Uh, Joe Biden's campaign mantra for his re-election against his opponent will be, I won't tell the truth about you as long as you don't tell the truth about me. Marie. Zsa Gabor was on Johnny Carson with her cat. And she goes to Johnny Carson. She goes, would you like to pet my cat? He goes, yeah. No, she says, would you like to pet my pussy? And he says, yeah, get the cat out of the way. Yeah, that's actually a myth, uh, Marie. That's an example of um, the Mandela uh, effect. It didn't happen. Email me. I'll, I'll send you some information on that. Well, this has been a lot of fun. You want to stay in touch with me? I uh, hope you can do so on Twitter at Frank Morano. Until tomorrow, God willing, Frank Morano, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.